If you wish to become a complete and wise leader, you must embrace a larger view of the force. My name is Devor, and you are listening to episode 36 of A Larger View of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. A reminder, as always, if this is your first time listening, please go back and check out the earlier episodes of this show. And please make sure to subscribe so you keep up to date with new episodes as they come out. Today, we close out the Book of Boba Fett trilogy of episodes. We are in episode 3 of 3. And on this episode, we're going to be continuing kind of thematically from... The previous episode by continuing to look at the Book of Boba Fett and its storytelling around the Tuscans and taking inspiration and finding connections to Native American history. And we're going to be talking about the story and the history of the Comanche people who at one time, as we will talk about in this episode, had a dominating presence in the American Southwest, and they were brought into contact by way of that with a number of different groups and populations that were in the region of the Southwest that were either living there already or were coming into it for a variety of different reasons. And we're going to really tell that story, and it's going to be a expansive story both geographically and chronologically. We're going to be going, we're going to be covering about two centuries, give or take, about of American history, and getting really in-depth. I think it's going to be really, really good. I think there's some really important and I think some really interesting connections we can make to Star Wars and particularly into Boba Fett and also about the Tuscans and about Tatooine more generally. And I think that's actually where I want to start before we get into any talking about anything about the Comanches or anything like that. Part of what this episode is about is, one, it's just kind of drawing inspiration from the Tuscan storytelling that we got in the Book of Boba Fett. So there's that, there's kind of drawing that connection and that parallel between the Tuscans as a kind of indigenous people, and in this case, the example that we're looking at, which is the Comanches as a kind of indigenous people and what kind of parallels we can draw there. But I think another thing that I want to kind of do with this episode by kind of introducing this particular topic or this particular lens on this subject is to maybe give us a different way of thinking about Tatooine and its place literally its place within the Star Wars galaxy. Because like the, the joke about Tatooine always is that in A New Hope, Luke says, when he's telling to 3PO, he says, if there's a bright center of the universe here on the planet that it's farthest from. So when you get introduced to Tatooine initially, it's like, oh, it's this buried rock in the you know, on the outskirts and nobody ever comes there and nothing interesting ever happens. And then ever since then, seemingly, this is how it goes, Star Wars storytelling has been kind of undermining that by now like everybody and their mother has been on Tatooine. All of these really important people in the story have been there. All these really important events have happened in there. And then, you know, you look at something like the Book of Boba Fett and it's like, oh, Mas Espa is this sprawling metropolis. It's this big city. And look at the spaceport where all of these transports are coming and all these people are coming and 
going and like is it now really kind of the center of the star wars galaxy when at one time we were made to believe that it wasn't however what i want to suggest and in drawing the comparison with the american southwest because this story that i'm going to tell in this episode is a story about the comanches but it's also a story about the southwest what i want to do is putting tatooine and the southwest side by side is to say that these two facets of Tatooine, the planet that's farthest from the bright center of the universe, and also this place where there's all these people and there's all this stuff happening, and you've got all these gangsters and these traitors, and everybody's coming and going. That these are actually not contradictions, but that they're rather two sides of the same coin. I think the best way to think about what Tatooine is is that it is the same thing that the American Southwest is in the story that we are telling when we tell the story of the Comanches in this episode, is that it is a frontier space, which is to say that it is on the edge. It is indeed far out from the from the core, from the center. It's not part of the core world. It's not part of a Coruscant or anything like that. It is on the distance. It is on the edge of the map. That is true. However, what is so often the case about frontier spaces, like a Tatooine, or if we go into the real world, like the Southwest, as well as others that have been studied and taken as case studies throughout history, is that frontier spaces very often tend to be sites of contact, which is that they tend to be places where many different populations come into contact with one another. They're coming into or through the region for different reasons, different things are bringing them there. And as they are coming through either to settle permanently or just passing through, they are meeting other populations, other peoples that are also moving through this space. And the outcome of that contact, of that crossing of paths, really runs the gamut. You get anything from cooperation and partnership all the way to violence and conflict and things in between. This is, I think, true in the case of Tatooine, and it is, as we are going to see when we talk about the story of the Comanches, it is also true in the American Southwest. So if we talk about Tatooine for a sec, if we're thinking about Tatooine as this frontier space, well, who is coming into this frontier space? And I think we can divide the populations of Tatooine into kind of three broad categories. I think there's three buckets that people can fall into. So on the one hand, first bucket is the indigenous population of the planet. So in that case, that would be Tuscans and Jawas. That's one population. So people who are already living there. Second bucket of people who we find on Tatooine are what we might call the settlers or even the colonists alternatively. So this is everybody who has come off world to settle on and live in Tatooine. So this is the humans that we meet on Tatooine. It's all the off-world aliens. It's your Larses, all the moisture farmers. It is, you might even say, potentially the Nikto speeder bike gang that we meet in Book of Both that might kind of fall into this category. So all those populations who have come from another place, another part of the galaxy, and are coming to settle and make a life on Tatooine. That's your second bucket, your settlers. The third bucket population on Tatooine is what you might call the opportunists. So these are folks, maybe who are transitory, maybe they're just passing through. They're not necessarily living there permanently or even for a very long time, but it is the population of folks who are there because they are after something specific and usually some sort of economic monetary motivation. So this is your pikes, the, you know, the most current example, the huts. 
any of your bounty hunters who are coming there to score a job, anything like that. All those would kind of fall in that third bucket of opportunists. So yeah, so you've got the indigenous, you've got the settlers, and the opportunists. And there's a couple things to note about these three different population groups. First is, even though we've set these out as three separate categories, these are by no means fixed or static categories, which is to say that people can kind of move between or among them depending on their particular context or situation. So if you take somebody like Boba Fett, for example, I think you could make a case that Boba Fett kind of fits at any given point in time of his story, depending on when you look at He might fit any or all of these categories. I think he kind of... He, he kind of erases the boundaries between them because you could say that well okay when booba's originally on tatooine the original thing that is bringing him there is he's an opportunist right he's there as a bounty hunter he's there working for job the hut he has no affinity for tatooine no connection to it he's not living there that's not his home he's just there because that's where the money is and that's that's where the jobs are and that's where he's going and then after the sarlik and all that and he gets found and rescued by the Tuscans, and you get that ceremonial adoption of him into the tribe, you could say maybe he does kind of, if even if he's not strictly speaking an indigenous Tatooinean, is that, is that how you describe the people who live on Tatooine? He is kind of ritualistically adopted by them and becomes a member of a tribe of one of the indigenous populations of Tatooine. You can at least say that at a minimum, even though he's not born and raised on Tatooine. It's not his native home planet. And then once he ultimately, you know, once his Tuscan family is murdered and he leaves that behind, and then we get to see him where he is in the Book of Boba Fett, where he is a crime lord and he's kind of becoming the ruler of Mas Espana and such. You could say maybe he's kind of getting into, he might still be kind of in the opportunist category, but maybe he's also kind of like a settler. He's now kind of trying to establish a home, like a permanent place on Tatooine as the the ruler, the, the leader of these people. So Boba is somebody who, yeah, depending on what point in his life you're looking at, he could fall into any one of these categories. So that's the first thing to know is that people can move between or among these categories depending on their context. It's not like you only fall into one and that's where you stay. The second thing to note is that because you've got these three different populations and they're all sharing the same space, they're all living on the same planet, that necessarily results in different relationships among them. And they're br being brought into contact with one another, and there are different results from that. So in some ways, you could take these three populations of Tatooine, you could imagine them as kind of points on a triangle, and then you could pretty much just draw arrows back and forth between all three of the points, because all three of the groups are interacting with one another in different sorts of ways. So to take like a couple examples, you know, like if you look at Book of Boba Fett, for example, I think you get a number of examples of this. So you've got, for example, the pikes who are there as part of the spice trade. And what happens? We see this in tribes of Tatooine. That's the whole plot there is the train is coming through and that is bringing them into contact with the Tuscans and they are murdering Tuscans. So you've got that kind of interaction and coming together and What's the result of that? You've got something like, think about like the Jawas. The Jawas are actually a great example of this, the, the way that the Jawas relate to the other populations of Tatooine. So the Jawas are a native indigenous population of Tatooine, but they interact with the settler population through commerce, through exchange. Right? Think about Peli rebuilding Din's starfighter. She has to go to the Jawas in order to get the parts. 
So there's that kind of commercial relationship where the Jawas are selling stuff to the settlers. At the same time, the Jawas are kind of dependent on the settlers, or at least kind of off-worlders more generally, for their business. Because it's the off-worlder population that is bringing the technology. They're bringing the ships and the droids and everything that becomes the junk that they scavenge. And then they turn around and sell it to other settlers on the planet. So there's a kind of relationship of mutual dependence where both sides are reliant on the others to get what they need. And so there's all sorts of examples. Again, go back to season two of The Mandalorian with the Marshal, where we see the relationship between the residents of Mos Pelgo and the Tuscans, where there had been this long-standing tension, this violence, but then they come together over this common enemy, which is defeating the crate dragon, and then you get this kind of accord this peace that emerges between them so there's all these different kinds of relationships and things that either bring people together in a cooperative way like if you think about let's say the, the jawa settler relationship or things that re result in conflict the pikes and the tuscans uh the settlers and some tuscans so all of these different examples of the different ways all of these different populations are relating to one another. They're by no means isolated from one another. They're thickly embedded in these connections, these relationships. So that's another feature of this tech, of this frontier of Tatooine. It's really important to note. So all of this, this frontier model, and this idea of this space where different populations are coming together and meeting and having these relations that span this gamut between, let's say, cooperation and conflict. All of this is stage settings of model we can now take from the context of Tatooine, and we can now transplant it to talk about the story that we're talking about here, which is the story of the Comanches and the story of the American Southwest. So to do a little bit more historical setting, we're starting our story here roughly at the beginning of the 18th century, so the beginning of the 1700s. And we're looking at what the lands that become the southwestern United States. So modern-day Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, California, Utah, Nevada, Colorado. That's roughly the part of the country that we are really going to be focusing on here. And it's a part of the country, and it's a period of time that I think a lot of times in the teaching of U.S. history gets overlooked I think generally, particularly in like your middle school, high school history classes, like I remember in my case, you know, when I went through that, the Southwest really kind of entered the picture mostly when the United States got there, which is to say the 1830s and 1840s when you get the annexation of Texas and the Mexican-American War, which we will get into in this episode a little bit later on. But before that, we didn't really talk much about what was happening before that. And, you know, for my case, it wasn't until I went to college and started taking American history courses there that I started getting a bigger picture of what American history in the colonial period looks like. Because I think very often it tends to be very Anglo-centered. So we tend to focus on the British colonies, the 13 original colonies on the East Coast, and then kind of tell the story of the rest of the country as the United States kind of expands and gets there. But really, if we go into the 1600s and the 1700s and we shift our focus away from the east, from the Atlantic coast, and we go west of the Mississippi River and we look at what's happening in the non-English or non-British parts of North America, 
there's a really fascinating story. We're going to get into some of that here with what the Spanish are doing, what the French are doing. And yeah, I think it's a really, really compelling story as the kind of big events that we're familiar with in American history are happening. We're going to touch on some of those here. There's also this really, really fascinating story happening elsewhere in other parts of what will become the United States. So, so I've set the stage a little bit I mean, in terms of the time period in which we're beginning, the part of the world, the part of the country that we're looking at. What's kind of going on there? So again, if we say, okay, the American Southwest in kind of 1700, what does it look like? Well, it is a land that is nominally on paper under the control of and part of the Spanish colonial empire, part of New Spain. So I'm not going to go super far back into the history of New Spain because it's not really necessary, but there is the part of thing that a lot of people are familiar with, which is the Spanish bankroll Christopher Columbus, and then you get the conquest first of the Aztec Empire with Hernan Cortes in Mexico and Central America, and then subsequent to that, you get the conquest of the Incas in South America, and so you get the Spanish colonial empire kind of starting out in Central America, kind of in Mexico, and then kind of moving south down into the northern parts of South America. Towards the end of the 16th century, so towards the end of the 1500s, the Spanish start to push beyond their northern boundary. So start expanding and conducting explorations into what we would now call the American Southwest. So roughly around 1600, you get the establishment of the colony of New Mexico, which ends up being really the kind of northernmost periphery of New Spain. A couple decades later in the 1680s, you start to have the first Spanish exploration of California. You start having them moving in there and kind of exploring there. And then right around that same time in the 1690s, you start to have Spanish explorations into Texas, although in both of the cases of California and Texas, it's another couple decades before really formal colonies are established or formal, formal provinces of the Spanish Empire are set up. But so, but in this in this period that we are talking about, right around 1700, this is the start where the Spanish are beginning to kind of push their northern borders and kind of pushing into that frontier into the southwest. And as a consequence of doing that, it is bringing them into contact with the indigenous population of the Southwest. So the Native Americans who call that part of the country home, which then brings us into starting to talk about the Comanches. So the Comanches first appear in written historical record in the year 1706. So in that year, the residents of the New Mexican city of Taos, Taos was a important trading town that was in northern New Mexico. So it was really in the kind of like the frontier of the frontier of the Spanish colonial empire. So it was really kind of the northernmost major city of the colony of New Mexico and was this important trading town, trading village. In 1706, the residents of Taos send a letter to the governor of New Mexico warning of an impending attack from members of the Ute Nation, so one of these Native American tribes that are living in the Southwest. So they're warning that they're about to be attacked by the Utes, as well as their allies, a tribe known as the Comanches. So who were the Comanches? So the Comanches were really actually a kind of transplant group to the Southwest. So the Comanches 
they emerged originally from a kind of splinter group from a larger native tribe or native peoples that were known as the Shone. And the Shoshone lived originally kind of farther north. So they lived in an area that is referred to as the Great Basin, which is really kind of in parts of what is now northern Utah and Colorado and Nevada. So a little bit kind of north of New Mexico. So sort of that part, that's where the Shoshones were originally living. In the late 17th century, so kind of towards the end of the 1600s, the Shoshone population split in two. One group, which was really the kind of majority of them, they moved further north. So if you think about like Montana, the Dakotas, kind of, they move in kind of that direction, like kind of a north, northeastern direction, really following the path of the bison herds. So, so they were following this opportunity to hunt more bison. So they go that way. They go north. A second group, a smaller group, breaks off and they go south. They go in a totally different direction. They head towards the southwest. And it is this smaller population of Shoshone peoples that a couple decades later will emerge in the historical record as the Comanches. Now, we don't really know why this split happens. We don't really know why this smaller group of Shoshone Indians breaks away from their larger tribe and nation and kind of goes in a different direction. It is possible. The likeliest explanation is that they were looking to gain access to horses because in the south and southwest, you have a fairly thriving trade in horses between the native peoples who are living there and the Spanish. And so in the same way that like the larger Shoshone group is following one animal, the bison, they're going after the bison, that the smaller group was instead following the path of a different animal, the horse, and that that was, was taking them south. So that is the likeliest explanation for why that happens. So as this Comanche group, or the, the, the people who are going to become the Comanche, are traveling southward, they eventually make their way into the territory of the Ute people, who really lived in what is now southern Utah. And when they arrive there, the Utes and the Comanches end up very quickly kind of forming an alliance. And the reasons for this alliance are rather strategic. So the Utes at the time that the Comanches are kind of coming south, so this is again at the end of the 1600s going into the 1700s, and this time the Utes are at war with another native people, the Navajo, over access to northern New Mexico. So there's a lot of intense competition in order to get access to trade with the Spanish in New Mexico. And so the Utes are fighting the Navajo over which people, which tribe is going to have a kind of monopoly on that trade. And so they end up allying with the Comanches as a way to get assistance in this war with the Navajos. Like, here's this other population. They've got numbers. They can help us. Like, if we ally with them, they can they can help us fight our, our enemy, the Navajo. So the Comanches are important in that way to the Ute people. They, they are this, they're this extra source of manpower that can help them in this conflict that they're having with another rival tribe. This alliance that the Comanches established with the Utes is really important to them and becomes really the kind of foundation for their expansion and their later power for a couple of reasons. The Utes really do some really important things for the Comanches. So most crucially, the Utes introduce the Comanches to horses. So horses, a lot of people know this because this is a sort of common 
knowledge about it is that horses were not native to North America. They were brought here by the Spanish colonists. And once native peoples are introduced to the horse, they kind of adapt them into their way of life. And so the Utes help the Comanches learn about horses and help them integrate horses into their society. And ultimately, the horse is going to become really, really important, both as a kind of bedrock to Comanche society, which again, we'll talk about more later, and also is going to be a really important part of their economic and military power. So that's the first thing they do is that they introduce them to horses. And the Comanches adapt to the horse really quickly. So even by the 1710s, so really kind of a couple decades after they're introduced to the horse, they already have a reputation as being very effective warriors and raiders on horseback. So they really take to horses and kind of adopt a sort of horse culture very quickly. The other thing that is important for the Comanches that comes out of this alliance with the Utes is that the Utes introduce the Comanches to European goods because the Utes already have this pre-established trading partnership with the Spanish. And from that, they are getting access to different manufactured goods. So guns, pots, iron knives, and more. And so the Comanches are picking those things up from the Utes and are learning really the value and the importance of having this trade relationship with these European colonists. The third kind of important thing that happens or kind of consequence that emerges out of this alliance between the Comanches and the Utes is that the Comanches, in addition to becoming part of this trading network in material goods with the Spanish colonists, the Comanches also become an important part of the southwestern slave trade, which looks different from, and we're going to talk about some of the ways that it looks different later on, from the slave trade and slavery as it is happening on the East Coast in the Atlantic colonies in Britain, whereas that slave system is really rooted in the enslavement and capture of African peoples and then transporting them across the Atlantic Ocean via the Middle Passage. The slave trade in the Southwest is really rooted in the raiding and capturing of other native peoples. So you've got the Comanches and the Utes. They are conducting raids against other tribes, taking captives, and then turning around and selling those captive native peoples on slave markets, or potentially, in some cases, keeping them for themselves. So in all of these ways, via the Utes, the Comanches become embedded in this network that already exists within the Southwest. This network of exchange that is, again, rooted in, as I talked about, both a trading in material goods and getting access to manufactured goods, getting things like guns. It is also a trade in horses, so in livestock and things like that. And then also this trade in human lives, in, in, in a slave trade that is also happening. And what starts to happen is that once we get into the early 18th century, the early 1700s, the Ute Comanche Alliance really kind of dominates northern Mexico. And what they start setting up, and this is going to be a kind of common thread really throughout Comanche history that we'll talk about, is that they engage in a system of both raiding and trading. That's, that's the kind of buzzword of the phrase, trading and raiding, which is to say that on the one hand, they are sustaining themselves, they are part of this network by, on the one hand, engaging in raids both to get, for instance, captives that they can then turn around and sell as part of the slave trade, but also raiding to get, for example, 
horses and other livestock that they might either use for themselves or potentially turn around and sell in colonial trading markets. And then they're also engaged in trading. So they are going to places like Taos. They are going to trade fairs the Spanish colonists set up, and they are coming into these towns, and then they are engaging in trading of people, of manufactured goods, of meat, of animal skins, and so on and so forth. So it's this, yeah, so the system of raiding and trading is a kind of two-sided coin. The raiding is one of the means by which the Utes and the Comanches are obtaining the resources, the goods that they're going to then turn around and then sell in another part of the Southwest or to another population of people. So through this system of writing and trading, the Utes and the Comanches are really kind of establishing themselves as the kind of preeminent power in northern New Spain, in this territory of northern New Mexico. Beginning in the 1720s, the Comanches, who already, as we've talked about, made one migration right from the Great Basin down south into the southwest, they start moving again. So the Comanches, beginning in the 1720s, start shifting east, really out of the southern Rocky Mountains, so the areas around, again, kind of Utah and northern New Mexico and such, and they start moving on to the plains to the east. So they start moving into the areas of what we would now be Texas, maybe Oklahoma, Kansas, kind of in those regions, eastern New Mexico, parts like that. And this geographic shift, the, the expansion for this, happens because of a couple different reasons. So on the one hand, moving east provides more opportunities for slave raiding. There are other native peoples, other native populations that are out on the eastern plains out in the Great Plains. And so there are opportunities there to engage in raiding for captives that they can then turn around and say, bring to New Mexico and then sell there. Additionally, the environment of the plains was very conducive to supporting a horse culture because you've there's a lot of grasslands and you need a lot of grass if you're going to have a lot of horses. So there's that right? from a kind of ecological perspective. It is a good way to maintain and grow their horse populations as they are becoming more central and bigger part of their society and their culture and also just as a means of allowing them to participate in commercial activities. Also, there are opportunities out on the Eastern Plains for hunting bison. And again, bison is something that they can both use for subsistence. So to get meat in order to eat and also to get skins to, let's say, make clothing or to build their teepees. But then there's also something they can turn around and sell, let's say, to the Spanish back in Mexico. So there's that. The third factor that is pushing them east is that there are more opportunities for trade than just in northern Mexico. They did not want to just limit themselves to New Mexico. Also, one of the things about New Mexico is that because it is kind of in the northern frontier, because it's kind of on the periphery of New Spain, their access to, let's say, the Spanish colonial supply chain is kind of limited. Like it takes a while for goods and other tradable items to make their way up to New Mexico. Supply chains are sometimes inconsistent. And so not wanting to necessarily just rely on the New Mexicans for trade, they start looking for opportunities for trade east in the Great Plains. And there you've got 
other native peoples, right? We've already talked about that in the context of slave raiding, but they're also there as an opportunity for trading. And you also have French merchants. You've got the French who have established some trading relationships kind of in further east out in around the kind of Mississippi River Valley and kind of in the area that that is modern day Louisiana. They're engaged with trade with native peoples kind of towards the center of the continent. And so the Comanches, by trading with the native peoples in the central Great Plains, are then by that way connected to these French traders out further east. So they're connecting to yet another trading network that exists. You've got in the southwest, you've got the Spanish and they're trading with native peoples. And then in the middle of the country and then further east, you've got French traders and they're trading with native peoples out there. So, yeah, so so the Utes and the Comanches start making this eastward push. So that they're moving into the center of the continent. They're pushing into the southern Great Plains out from New Mexico, from the southwest. And as they are doing that, they are coming into contact with another powerful native nation. And that is the Apaches. And the Apaches were moving out as a migration pattern of their own. They are moving into central and western Texas. So the Apaches were initially kind of further east, kind of out towards the the middle of the of the United States, and then you start a migration westward, sort of across the Great Plains, starting to get into the Southwest. At pretty much the same time that the Utes and the Comanches are making this eastward move from the Southwest into the Great Plains, and so as a consequence, what happens is that in the early decades of the 1700s, the two, the three tribes come into contact with another. You've got the westward moving Apaches and the eastward moving Utes and Comanches, and invariably. They, they cross paths in the central Great Plains. And as a result of this contact, this contact ends up triggering pretty much about a, a half century of conflict between the allied Utes and Comanches on the one hand and then the Apache people on the other. And this conflict is, again, born out of a couple different sources. It's on the one hand, it's a contest over natural resources, particularly water access to different waterways and rivers for, let's say, again, if you want to maintain this her- this horse population, you got to find water for them to drink, and that's bringing them into conflict with other people. The Apaches are also a horseback people. They also need these natural resources. They need water. They need grasses for their horse population. So there's that conflict over natural resources on the one, on the one hand. And then also there is economic competition. There is conflict over access to the trading market in New Mexico. The Utes and the Comanches have kind of established this monopoly. The Apaches, who are moving westward, are trying to move in on their business. The Comanches and the Utes naturally don't like that, so that's a source of conflict. And so what ends up happening is that the Utes and the Comanches together launch really devastating attacks against the Apaches in an attempt really to cut them off from New Mexico. So one of the things that you see is that when the Apaches come into New Mexico for trade, so when they're showing up, let's say, to trading towns or to trading fairs, all of a sudden the Utes and the Comanches will just sweep in and launch a raid to try to attack them. So they're really launching this kind of economic warfare against the Apaches in order to try to cut them off from the trade in the Southwest, this trade in New Mexico. The Apaches, in response to this, turn to the Spanish for aid. They're like, hey, we got these these raiding Utes and Comanches. Can you help us? But the Spaniards 
prove both unwilling and unable to help. On the one hand, they're not super interested about inserting themselves into kind of intranative affairs. So there's that element. And then also, again, going back to the fact that Mexico is on the frontier. It's on the northern periphery of the Spanish Empire. Getting soldiers, getting manpower, getting resources up there to commit to fighting the Utes and Apaches is a pretty significant expenditure. And so they're not super willing to do that. And so as a consequence of that, as a consequence of these attacks and this warfare that is launched against them by the Utes and the Comanches, as well as the Spanish being unwilling to protect them from it, the power of the Apaches is really broken by about the mid-1720s. The, the Apaches had had this really kind of strong presence within central and western Texas and in the kind of central plains. But by the 1720s, the Utes and the Comanches have really kind of displaced them. And so as a consequence, the Apaches kind of retreat north. They kind of move into northern Texas, Oklahoma, kind of in that direction, away from the Utes and the Comanches. And so once that happens, once the Apaches are kind of geographically displaced, the Comanches really kind of end up filling the vacuum that they left in terms of the trade in New Mexico. They really are kind of able to monopolize a lot of the flow of goods that was originally going to the Apaches. And by the time that this has happened, by the time that the Apaches are kind of pacified and dealt with, and the Comanches kind of start to muscle in on their territory, by this point, by the time of really, let's say the 1730s, the Comanches have now really fully adapted to horse culture. So I talked about how the Utes introduced them to the horses and they take them on really quickly. By the 1730s, horses have really become a kind of integral part of the Comanche way of life. And by the 1730s, the Comanches have acquired enough horses really to put all of their people on horseback. So they have a very, very large population of horses and they have really become a, a horse people. So once... The Apaches are defeated in the 1720s. You have a period of peace that kind of comes across the Southwest that lasts really until about the 1730s. There's roughly maybe like, let's say, a decade or so of peace in the Southwest where there aren't really any kind of major conflicts either among different native tribes or between native tribes and the Spanish. And that comes to an end in the 1730s, when the Comanches start pushing into Apache territory, really in northeastern New Mexico and northern Texas. So, you know, I talked about how the Utes and the Comanches together had beaten back the Apaches. The Apaches had been forced to retreat. Now in the 1730s, the Comanches start muscling into Apache territory, the territory that the, the Apaches have claimed after being forced to retreat. And again, there's multiple different reasons why they are reigniting conflict with the Apaches. So there are the, there's the commercial elements, of course, which is that there's a need for Apache slaves. They, they need captives in order to fuel their trade in the slave market. So there's that. They want to raid for horses, again, to add to their populations, because as I just talked about, the horses become this really, really integral part of their society and their way of life. In addition to those kind of economic material incentives, there's also kind of increasing 
cultural importance, which is to say that as the Comanches are engaged in all of this conflict, one of the things that starts to happen internally within Comanche society is that war and in, in conquest increasingly become this important marker of status, So that, which is to say that one of the ways that you can advance through the ranks, as particularly as a Comanche man, one of the ways that you can achieve status and recognition and wealth and power is by being a great warrior, by going out and fighting and engaging in conquest. So both of those types of motivations are motivating the Comanches to reignite conflict with the Apaches in the 1730s. On the one hand, there's the clear commercial incentives, which is that they need the horses, they need the captives in order to fuel their commercial activities. But then there's also this social and cultural dimension, which is that making war is becoming this way that Comanche men are able to prove their prowess. And so for that reason, that is why they kind of spark up these conflicts again. So in response to this, the reemergence of Comanche aggression against them, the Apaches flee into New Mexico. So they go, they head into central New Mexico and they once again seek protection under the Spanish. And what ends up happening here is that because the Apaches go deeper into Spanish territory and they are turning to the Spanish as potential allies, this ends up actually bringing the Comanches almost by proxy into conflict with the Spanish by the time we get to the early 1740s. This initially a war that they had waged against the Apaches then becomes this additional war against the Spanish colonists in New Mexico. And so as we go over the course of the 1740s, tensions between the Spanish and the Comanches increasingly ramp up. So in 1746, for example, the Spanish ban the Comanches from the trading fairs that are taking place in Taos, so in this northern trading town that I talked about earlier that's a really important site of commerce and exchange. The Comanches are banned from there in 1746. They are, so they're on the one hand, they're going to war against the Spanish. At the same time that this happens, the Comanches are also getting to war with other rival tribes. So basically by the mid-1740s, the Comanches are finding themselves kind of in this multi-front war, where they're on the one hand, they're, they're fighting the Apaches, who they kind of originally went to war with. They're fighting the Spanish, because they're a kind of proxy ally. Then you've got other rival tribes in the Southwest who now kind of smell blood, and they start moving in against the Comanches, trying to displace them. And so by the mid-1740s, the Comanches are really finding their resources and their manpower stretched, because they're fighting all of these different populations and fighting is coming from them in all different directions. And it is looking like the Comanches are on the precipice of potentially having their power in the Southwest broken because they're just, they're fighting too many enemies and they don't seem to have a clear way out. However, fortunes change for the Comanches in 1746. What happens in that year? In 1746, they establish an alliance with another native tribe, the Tauvayas. And the Tauvaya people live out in eastern Texas. So remember, I sort of talked about earlier how the Comanches had been moving out of the southwest, out of New Mexico, and it had been pushing eastward into the Great Plains and into Texas in search of other economic 
and commercial opportunities. Well, as a consequence of that, they're able to strike up this alliance with this other native people, the Tavayas, who live out to the east. And the real plus of this alliance for the Comanches is that the Tavayas were allied with the French, who were, I talked about the French earlier, who were out even farther east, out in Louisiana. They were trading with native peoples there. And the French are able to supply the Tavayas, who are then able to supply the Comanches, with guns, with provisions, with other resources that they need in order to sustain themselves militarily, in order to get food, in order to stay alive, in order to get guns and powder and all of that, in order to wage this war. And so this alliance that the Comanches are able to strike up is really crucial and so allows them, by 1748, to shift the balance of power in their favor. So just two years after they strike up this alliance with the Tavayas, by 1748, the tides of the war in the southwest have shifted in favor of the Comanches. And the Comanches are once again reascendant. And so as a consequence of that, in 1752, the Spanish end up brokering a peace treaty between themselves and the Comanches to really bring this rather multi-year, multi-front conflict to an end. And this peace treaty does a couple of different things. So on the one hand, the Spanish recognize the Comanches as a sovereign nation, which is really important, and kind of establishes this sort of legal principle or way of legally recognizing Native peoples that ends up getting carried on in other contexts and gets reflected, for example, in the writing of the U.S. Constitution, where Native peoples are also legally designated a kind of sovereign independent nation. The Comanches are also granted various trading privileges with the Spanish, and also crucially the Spanish withdraw their support for the Apaches. So they kind of leave the Apaches hanging out to dry as a price for getting peace with the Comanches and bringing this war to an end. So the, the, the Apaches end up getting kind of marginalized as you get this emerging Spanish-Comanche alliance. So by the time of the early 1750s, you have got a tentative peace has returned to the southwest. The Apaches have once again kind of been neutralized and kind of been marginalized and pushed out. And you have this peace, this alliance that has been formalized between the Spanish and the Comanches. However, peace does not remain for long because right around the time that the Comanches are able to broker this peace treaty with the Spanish, make things good with them, their decades-long alliance with the Utes starts to deteriorate. So remember, the Comanches and the Utes had been allied peoples really since the turn of the century, since the beginning of the 1700s. But by the time you get to mid-century, that alliance is starting to break down. And so why is that? Why all of a sudden are the Comanches and the Utes who had gotten along so famously? Why are they starting to come out loggerheads? There's a couple of reasons for this. So for one... The the Comanche and the Utes had been bound together for so long by a shared enemy, namely the Apaches. That it, it had been a kind of the enemy of of my enemy is my friend situation, where the fact that they had been fighting the same rival tribe had kind of been this thing that had stitched them together. With the Apaches gone, with them kind of neutralized and pushed out of the picture. There was less holding the Comanches and the Utes together because they no longer had this common enemy to unite them. So that's on the one hand something that is causing this long friendship and alliance to start deteriorating. Additionally, 
you start to have a growing rivalry between the Utes and the Comanches over access to the limited goods that are available in New Mexico markets. So as you can see, this is a kind of common theme, which is economic competition, access to these markets becomes this significant source of conflict because there's, again, just because of by virtue of where this territory is geographically and its relationship to the kind of core of the Spanish Empire, goods are limited, resources are limited. So there's only so many people who can trade realistically. And so wanting the the desire to to want to monopolize as much of that limited trade as possible ends up bringing the Comanche and the Utes to loggerheads. And this kind of simmering conflict that had been boiling up really blows up into a regional war by the mid to late 1750s. So again, this peace that the Spanish had been able to broker at the beginning of the 1750s lasts at most a couple of years until this Ute Comanche line just blows up and then it tur- and then the Southwest is once again embroiled in war by the time we get to the late 1750s. And so you've got the Comanche and the Utes, they're fighting one another. And the Spanish, now having learned the lessons of earlier conflicts, they ultimately decide to insert themselves into the conflict as a kind of mediator. They now sort of understood, they've seen the, the value, the potential of what they can do as a third party to try and bring peace and stability to the region. And so they are able to, through their intervention, they're able to broker a peace accord in 1762 and once again return the region to peace. And the accord that they're ultimately able to kind of hammer out ultimately has the effect of bringing the Spanish and the Comanches even closer together. They had already had an established alliance, but now that alliance is even tighter at the expense of the Utes. So in the same way that a decade earlier, the Spanish and the Comanches had formed this peace and had done so at the price of marginalizing the Apaches, this peace in 1762 between the Spanish and the Comanches has the effect of marginalizing the Utes and kind of pushing them out. So what you start to see is that over this course of the 1730s, the 40s, the 1750s, and going into the 1760s, you can see what is happening. The Comanches are able to steadily marginalize and push out other rival tribes and increasingly become a kind of monopoly power in the Southwest. They're able to weaken other rivals and then concentrate economic and military power and political power in themselves which is going to be really important for them. So at the time that this is happening, at the time that you are having this conflict that is happening with the Utes out in the Southwest in the late 1750s, you're also starting to see the Comanches expanding their territory further. So they start to expand into Western and to Central Texas, really in the mid to late 1750s. So at the same time that all the stuff in the Southwest in New Mexico is happening, you were also starting to see the Comanches expanding their territorial reach. And this expansion into Texas, into kind of the Southeast, coincides with a pretty significant population boom within the Comanches. So it's hard, of course, to get really reliable numbers in terms of the size of the Comanche nation in this time period, but it is estimated that there are roughly about 1,500 Comanches 
1726. This is probably an undercount. There were probably more than that. But by 1750, there are anywhere from 10 to 15,000. So one of the net effects of all of this expansion, whereby the Comanches are growing their trading networks, they are expanding their horse populations, they are expanding their territorial reach. Going along with all that is that they are expanding raw numbers. So the, the size of the Comanche nation is growing at the same time that their economic power is growing, their political power is growing, their, their capacities of military power is growing. And so in all of these ways, the Comanches are positioning themselves as the dominant force in the southwest and the kind of central plains region. So I talked about in 1762, you get this peace accord that ends the, the war between the Comanches and the Utes. The following year, 1763, is really kind of watershed year in colonial North American history because it is in 1763 that we see the end of the Seven Years' War. So I actually talked about the Seven Years' War a little bit in the previous episode, the Seven Years' War, a.k.a. the French and Indian War. So this had been this war that had happened between – it had started out between – the French and the British over control of the Ohio region and then kind of blossoms into really almost a kind of world war where there is fighting in North America, there's fighting in Europe, there's fighting in colonies out in East and South Asia. And then in 1763, you get the Treaty of Paris, one of many treaties of Paris's that brings an end to the Seven Years' War. And the end of the Seven Years' War is really important for a couple of reasons. So on the one hand, the French are booted out of North America. So the British acquire pretty much all territory east of the Mississippi River. They acquire the French portions of Canada. And... The French territories in the Midwest of the United States, so France had had laid claim to a large possession within the Southwest that was known as the Louisiana Territory that really kind of encompasses pretty much all of what we would now call the Midwest. They end up ceding that territory to the Spanish, who had actually been an ally of theirs during the Seven Years of War, and they pretty much just give them Louisiana almost as a kind of like, thank you for your help. <laughs> and more or less. So the French are no longer really a force to be reckoned with in North America. And the Spanish, on paper, have substantially increased the size of their colonial empire. Because now the Spanish colonial empire, again, on paper, pretty much controls all of what becomes the United States west of the Mississippi River, minus like the Pacific Northwest. So minus the area that is now Oregon and Washington State. That's kind of disputed. It's sort of claimed by the British. That's a whole other thing. But again, on paper, they claimed all of this as part of New Spain. In practice, they really don't control a lot of this territory. The Spanish presence in these northern territories is thin to non-existent. And in reality, much of it is effectively controlled by the Comanches, who have really kind of established this foothold and established a region that comes to be known as Com Comancheria. And Comancheria kind of refers to 
the territory controlled by, dominated by the Comanches. And it's just kind of, it's this swath, again, that kind of expands from the southwest kind of into western and central Texas into the kind of middle of the country. So they are really kind of establishing their own little almost state within the nominal boundaries of the Spanish colonial empire. So in the late 1760s, so now to continue our story, in the late 1760s, the Comanches begin to start forging trading networks kind of north into the northern plains. So they've already established all these networks. You know, they've got the trade with New Mexico in the southwest. They have established these linkages kind of eastward into Texas, into the southeast. And now in the late 1760s, they're starting to move north and and beginning to make contact with tribes and merchants and traders kind of in the northern plains as you start moving up to, you know, your Kansas and your Nebraska's and your Dakotas kind of in that direction. And so as a consequence, you've got this massive trading network that kind of emerges in the central United States, or becomes the central United States, where you've got trade bringing goods down from British Canada. So you've got the southward movement of goods where you've got British traders bringing things via native peoples down south from the northern plains. And then you've got trade that is going east into the Mississippi Valley, kind of across the middle of the country. And then you've got this trade that extends southward down into ultimately East Texas and then Louisiana and then by extension of Florida. So you've got this whole network where you're starting to see really kind of across the continent, the Comanches are are establishing all of these linkages and they're making these commercial relationships with all of these different native peoples and then by extension with these other colonial peoples. So... By no means are they just limiting themselves to the Spanish. They are tra- they are establishing these linkages with the British. They're establishing these linkages with other traders to the south. And one of the consequences of this ever-widening trade network in which the Comanches are embedding themselves is that guns start to flood into Comanche hands because they are starting to get them from everywhere. They've gotten some, of course, traditionally from the Spanish, but now they're also getting them again for, through these northern routes, trade routes from the British, from these eastern routes going into Louisiana and Florida and East Texas. And as a consequence, by about 1767, the Comanches are so well armed that they are in fact better armed than the Spanish colonial troops in the Southwest. And not only that, they are so well armed that the Comanches actually start exporting guns. So they start turning around and actually selling guns to the Spanish instead of buying just guns from the nominal colonizers. They are turning around and selling guns to the colonizers. Again, really reinforcing just how weak, effectively, Spanish colonial rule in these northern territories is. On paper, again, this is all part of New Spain. In practice, The Comanches are the superpower here, and they are the ones who are really calling the shots. And so, as a consequence of this growing power that the Comanches are getting, both through these commercial networks that they're establishing, and then also all of these weapons that they are getting, this peace that the Spanish had managed to broker in 1762 really starts to falter 
and you start to see hostilities resume in 1767. And so as a result, the Comanches start launching these really devastating raids into New Mexico. They resume this pattern of trading and raiding. And as a consequence of this warfare that the Comanches are launching, this really ends up breaking the New Mexico colony by the late 1770s. There's, you know, in, in terms of kind of a perfect storm of circumstances, the Comanche War and all of this raiding ends up also coinciding with a drought that sweeps over New Mexico right around the same time. So the combination of both this warfare that the Comanches are launching against the Spanish with these ecological conditions of this drought, meaning that by the late 1770s, the Comanches have really kind of established a grip, a hold over the New Mexico colony. And the Spanish resistance to all of this Comanche raiding and war making is fairly weak. They're not really able to push back effectively. And that's for several reasons. One of them, as I already talked about, the Comanches are very well armed. They have better arms and more arms than the Spanish do. So the Spanish are growing up against a fairly formidable opponent. Additionally, again, geography coming back here. New Mexico is geographically isolated. Getting guns, getting soldiers all the way up there is very hard because you have to do it all the way from Central America, from Mexico upwards, and it's hard to do that. Additionally, the Spanish kind of further south in sort of in the areas of kind of northern, what's now northern Mexico, the Spanish are fighting some battles against the Apaches, who, even though they are no longer a kind of dominant force, they're still around, they're still kicking, and they're still, they're still entering the conflict. So the Spanish are kind of, they kind of got their hands tied in that way. And so their already limited resources are being stretched in by the fact that they're having to fight both the Comanches kind of to the north and then the Apaches to the south. And so as a consequence of that, New Mexico, for all intents and purposes, ends up falling under the control of the Comanches. And what the Comanches kind of end up doing is that they really sort of divide New Mexico into these zones based on where they can sell and then where they can pillage. So what they're doing is they're literally going to one part of New Mexico and they are, let's say, raiding the farms and the ranches there for horses, for livestock. And then they are turning around and moving all of that to another part of New Mexico. And then they're showing up saying, hey, here, buy these horses, buy these other livestock, buy these goods that we have that we take that we took from other New Mexicans elsewhere. So they really kind of divvied up the colony and they're kind of ruling it in this way that is commercially advantageous from them and really ended kind of giving a lie to the notion of that this is a Spanish colony under Spanish control. Really, New Mexico at this point, by the late 1760s and into the 1770s, is for all intents and purposes a kind of extension of Comanche lands, Comanche territory. So, as all of that is taking place, so as the Comanches are waging this war against the Spanish in the 1760s and going into the 1770s, to the east... The Comanches are making further inroads into southwestern Texas and eastern Texas. So they are continuing their eastern expansion that had kind of already begun in the 1750s. So again, you see how they are, how they're trying to establish their power 
and they're trying to concentrate. You've got this war in Mexico, and then you've got them pushing into further into Texas. In eastern Texas, the Comanches focus on breaking the power of their main rival, and that is namely the Wichitas. So much in the same way that how in the Southwest, they'd had, they had to establish themselves by displacing first the Apaches and the Utes. As the Comanches are getting into East Texas, they're having to reckon with the Wichitas and trying to push them out and sort of monopolize their trading networks. And their efforts in doing so are aided by a smallpox epidemic that breaks out in 1777 and 1778 that ends up killing roughly about a third of the population of the Wichita Nation. And so so this rather dramatic decrease in population allows the Comanches to kind of muscle into East Texas and kind of monopolize a lot of the trade and commercial activity that had once been the domain of the Wichitas. So as they're out there, there are efforts, there are attempts at forging a relationship, forging an alliance between the Comanches and Spanish Texas. So much in the same way that the Spanish had attempted to kind of come to this peace out in New Mexico, they also try to establish a peace out to the east in Texas. But this, for all intents and purposes, largely falls apart. And what the Comanches end up doing in the 1770s and kind of going into the early 1780s is that the Comanches start to really replicate the status quo of New Mexico and eastern Texas. So they start engaging in these really devastating raids. They try to really monopolize the territory and the trade that is happening in east Texas. So at around the same time that they are turning New Mexico into this appendage of their own territories, the Comanches are also out in the east busy trying to turn East Texas into a similar kind of vassal status, right? trying to place eastern Texas under their rule. All the while, as all of this is happening, the Comanches are continuing to see a growth in their population. So again, coinciding with their territorial growth, their population begins to grow. So Comanche populations triple between the 1750s and the 1780s. By the early 1780s, it is estimated that there are roughly 40,000 Comanches, and that is more than the colonial populations of New Mexico and Texas combined. So pretty much across the board, whether you're looking at territory, whether you're looking at commerce, whether you're looking at the capacity to wage war, whether you're looking at just raw numbers and population, the Southwest and the Southern Plains are really, for all intents and purposes, Comanche territory, are kind of controlled by the Comanches. Again, on paper, this is Spanish territory. In practice, this is Comanche territory. So naturally, for from the perspective of the Spanish, they have a real mess on their hands right now. They are seeing their northern colonies in New Spain just being absolutely ravaged and absolutely dominated by this native tribe, by these Comanches. And so, as a result, beginning in the 1770s, the Spanish start to embark on an effort to revitalize their American colonies and really try and gain the control of the situation in the north. 
1776, for example, they established what becomes called the Commandancy General of the Interior Provinces of the North. So they established this new administrative post, this new kind of governor post, and they introduce really a kind of top-down administration, whereas before the northern colonies, so your New Mexico's, your Texas, had really kind of been left to their own devices and kind of governed locally and regionally and been kind of just sort of hanging out there on their own, kind of detached from the larger Spanish empire, you now have this office set up and you have this administration that's set up that is really focused on bringing greater administrative control to these territories, integrating them more into New Spain proper, and also crucially committing more resources to the defense of the northern frontier. So whereas before the, the Spanish had really been unwilling slash unable to commit the manpower and resources needed to defend these northern territories, by the mid-1770s, they're sitting and realize, okay, we need to actually make this a priority if we're going to hold on to these, these territories and if we're going to be able to repel these Comanches. And so as a consequence, in, to reflect this renewed commitment, in 1779, the governor of New Mexico declares war on the Comanches. So where up to this point, the Comanches had really been the kind of aggressive force pushing into New Mexico, making war on New Mexico. This is now, you know, my Star Wars phrase, this, this might be a case of the empire striking back in 1779, where the Spanish are now taking the war to the Comanches. At the same time that this is happening, at the same time that you get a kind of renewed, more aggressive Spain really taking it to the Comanches, to the north of the of Comancheria, to the north of the Comanche territories, the rival tribes of the Kiowas and the Pawnees start to make war on the Comanches. So once again, in the same way that they'd experienced a couple decades earlier, the Comanches all of a sudden by the 1780s are starting to find themselves in a situation of a multi-front war. So to the south and the southwest, they've got the Spanish coming at them. To the north, they've got these rival tribes, the Pawnees and the Kiowas, waging war on them and pushing into them. And one of the consequences of that is that this conflict ends up undermining the economic ties that the Comanches have forged to the north, because now they're at war with some of these tribes, and that is cutting them off from some of these trade networks that they had established kind of further to the north into the northern Great Plains. So you've got them on the one hand going to war with Spain in the southwest, and naturally they're warring with the Spanish, not really trading with the Spanish. To the north, their networks are kind of drying up because they're going to war with northern tribes of the Kiowas and Pawnees. And what ends up happening also is that at the same time that all that is happening, trade to the east, so that trade that was involved in eastern Texas and out to Louisiana, that trade starts to dry up also. Because if you think about this, we're in late 1770s, 1780s. What's happening to the east? The American Revolution. And Spain ends up joining with the colonies, with the American colonies as an ally in the revolution. And as part of their alliance with the revolting colonies, they close off Comanche trade with the British in the southeast. The British traders had been had, had, had been part of the Comanche trading networks via Louisiana and via Florida. The Spanish kind of turn off that spigot there. And so 
on all fronts, the Comanche trade networks are being taxed in the southwest, in the north, and all the way out to the east and the southeast. On top of that, in 1780 and 81, you have this massive smallpox epidemic that rages through the Comanche populations and is quite devastating. So I think one number, it is estimated that in this epidemic, about 16,000 eastern Comanches, so the Comanches that are living out in Texas, not in the southwest, about 16,000 are killed, which amounts to roughly about two-thirds of the population. So you've got multi-front war on the one hand, trade drying up on the other hand, and then you have disease on the other hand. So all of these forces are really putting massive strain on the Comanches. And all of those factors end up motivating the Comanches to seek peace with the Spanish by the time we get to the early to mid-1780s. Now, as it so happens, the Spanish, although they had originally been the ones to kind of renew fighting against the Comanches and really start this aggression against the Comanches, they are also by this time interested in going to the table and seeking a peace with the Comanches. Now, why is that? Well, in 1783, the American Revolution ends. And as a consequence of that, we get yet another treaty of Paris. And as part of the post-war settlement, Spain receives Florida from the British. Florida had been a British possession actually since the end of the Seven Years' War. And then in 1783, it goes to Spain. However, they have some gripes about where the border of Florida is drawn, particularly in relation to where the territory of the United States is, because the United States now gets all the British territory east of the Mississippi minus Florida. The Florida that is ceded to the Spanish is really kind of closer to what is now the modern day state of Florida. The Spanish have kind of laid a larger claim that really would have claimed a lot of the, the deep south and the southeast United States, but they don't get that. And although they had been allies of the Americans during the revolution, now that the United States is a new nation and that the United States now has all of this territory, now the United States is all the way right up, butting right up against the Mississippi River. So they are right on the border with the Spanish colonies. The Spanish start to get a little worried about the prospect of American expansion. They're looking at this new nation, this young nation. They've just won this war. They're clearly land hungry. They want to, they're itching to expand beyond the Atlantic coast. And so they're looking at the situation and thinking, this could pose a threat to our colonies west of the Mississippi River. It is possible these Americans might start wanting to push into the Louisiana Territory, into Texas, into further out west. And so in order to rebut this potential threat of American expansion, the Spanish start to think that it would be wise for them to pursue a strategy of forging relationships with native tribes towards the east, in the middle of the country, in the southwest, so that they can act as a kind of buffer to the Americans. So they start to think, if we can if we can get some alliances with native peoples in eastern Texas or the native peoples who are living, let's say, in Oklahoma, or even further down the Southwest, they can be a kind of buffer. It can be a kind of check against American expansion. They can keep the Americans from getting too full of themselves and trying to push further west. So that increasingly starts to 
put the Spanish in the situation where they're saying, you know what? We've been at war with these Comanches long enough. If we, if we get peace with them, if we're able to establish an alliance, then maybe they can be our safeguard against American westward expansion. They can track the Americans out in the east. And so in the summer of 1785, the Spanish negotiate a peace treaty with the eastern Comanches. So these are the Comanches living out in the province of Texas. And this peace treaty does a couple of things. So the Comanches agree to end hostilities against Texas. They agree to return Spanish captives. There is a provision where the Comanches promise not to interact with Spanish enemies, i.e. the Americans. And also there is this agreement on a Spanish-Comanche alliance against the Apaches, who are still around and are still causing headaches for the Spanish colonial administrators. So in the summer of 1785, peace comes to the eastern territory. So peace kind of comes to Spanish Texas. They're able to hammer out this treaty with the Comanches there. Afterwards, in the fall and winter of 1785 going into 1786, you have peace talks emerging in New Mexico. So the situation in the east is chill. There's no more war there. The Spanish turn their attention to the west, to New Mexico, to hammer out a deal with the Comanches there. And so what you start to see in this period, again, from the end of 1785 into 1786, there's all of these different accords that are happening, both between the Spanish and different native tribes, and also amongst different native tribes. So for example, the Comanches and the Utes are able to hammer out an accord, an agreement that kind of brings their fighting that had been going on for a couple of decades now to an end. The Spanish negotiate treaties with the Comanches. They also are able to negotiate a treaty with the Navajo, who were another powerful native nation who were kind of living to the west of New Mexico. So there's all of these different talks that are happening and all of these different agreements that are being hammered out. And the effect of that is that once we get into the late 1780s and then, you know, going into the 1790s, you get the return of peace in the southwest and into the southern plains. And you see the effect of this peace manifesting in different ways. So, for instance, trade fairs in New Mexico and elsewhere are opened up to the Comanches. So the Spanish are inviting the Comanches to come into their towns to engage in trade. The Comanches open up the plains to Spanish bison hunters. So they are allowing the Spanish to come into their territory to hunt bison. The Comanches and the Spanish are waging a number of wars against the Apaches, their common enemies. So between 1786 and 1788, they launched five different campaigns against the Apaches. And then to the east, there is a kind of similar situation where you have trade and cooperation emerging between the Spanish and the eastern Comanches out in Texas. So you have this shift in terms of the Comanche's relationship with the Spanish, where for the past couple of decades, for the 1770s and the 1780s, they had been in this relationship of domination, where they had been taking control of and subjugating New Mexico and eastern Texas, and really just turning those Spanish provinces into extensions of their own power. And that ends up turning into a more kind of cooperative mutually beneficial relationship with the Spanish by the time we get to the late 1780s and we're going into the 1790s. However, this cooperation really just kind of exists on the surface because just below what is what is seemingly happening on the surface on paper, 
the Spanish are not really interested in a mutual, beneficial, almost equal relation with the Comanches. They are really looking for ways to subjugate the Comanches and bring them ultimately under their control. So they are trying to establish a relationship of domination over the Comanches. And you can see this thinking reflected in 1786. The leader of the colony of New Spain, who had the great title of Viceroy, a guy by the name, by the name of Bernardo de Galvez, he issues a tract that is called Instructions for Governing the Interior Provinces of New Mexico. And this is really a kind of step-by-step instruction manual that he believed that if Spanish colonial administrators followed this, they would be able to bring the native populations of the southwest and the southern plains, chief among them the Comanches, under their heel. And you can see in these instructions the kind of philosophy approach the Spanish are taking. So de Galvez viewed trade as a means of cultivating economic dependency on Spain. So he thought that if, they, if the Spanish were able to pull the native peoples, if they were able to pull the Comanches into these trading networks with them, that over time the effect would be that the Comanches would become increasingly reliant and dependent on the Spanish for different goods. And so that it would become a situation where the Comanches would not be able to really live without the Spanish, and that this in turn would allow the Spanish to kind of assert themselves as the dominant party in their relationship with the Comanches. De Gavalvis is thinking went so far as to advocate the selling of firearms to native peoples. He thought that this was actually it would be a means by which their military power is broken. His kind of logic was that guns would prove less effective for Native Americans and the bow and arrow, that they would not be able to be as good fighters if they weren't using their traditional weapons. He also kind of advocated selling lower quality guns to the Comanches, so weapons that would, let's say, break more often. And so as a consequence, the Comanches would become dependent on the Spanish in order to get parts, in order to get powder and all that. So again, it's sort of establishing these relationships of dependency and reliance as a way of the Spanish trying to set themselves up as the dominant party. Additionally, the Spanish, they engage in this effort to try and centralize Comanche authority as a means of control. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later on in the episode. I'm going to talk a little bit more about kind of Comanche society and how it's structured, which is that even though all of these people that we're talking about, all these Comanches that are living you know, f- from the southwest, from New Mexico, all the way across into eastern Texas, even though they're all part of the Comanche nation, in terms of actual politics and governing structure, the Comanches do not have any kind of centralized authority. There's not like one chief of the Comanches. So power is ve- is distributed very widely and loosely. And so a lot of different Comanche units are able to operate kind of independently. And so the, the Spanish try and press the Comanches to centralize political authority more because they think that if they can do so, then it will become easier to bring all of the Comanche populations under their control. 
And so they try to do this in different ways. So one of them, for example, is to engage in the practice of top-down gift giving. So, you know, an important part of the way that the Spanish and the Comanches related to one another was through these tributes, through these gifts that the Spanish were giving the Comanches as a gesture of friendship and alliance. And so what they were trying to do increasingly was to have gifts kind of trickled down from higher level chiefs. So chiefs that were more powerful, controlled, greater numbers of people, had more wealth and status. And those gifts would kind of trickle down from those chiefs down the rungs onto lower level Comanches. And there's this idea and this vision of trying to kind of generate dependency where the kind of lower level Comanches were dependent on the higher ups in order to get their gifts and their goods. And then the higher most Comanches were in turn dependent on the Spanish to get their gifts. Now, one of the things that you start to see as you get into the 1780s and the 1790s is that the Comanches politically do start to evidence some centralization. You start to see them move away more from the kind of looser model into establishing more of a top-down kind of political system. But that really happens for many reasons. The Spanish kind of imagine that it is happening solely because of their pressure and influence. But there's actually a lot of factors at play. So partly it is Spanish pressure. That is having an effect. But also there was, among the Comanches, and within Comanche society, there was a realization that some greater degree of centralizing was necessary in order to meet with and engage with imperial powers as equals. So there was a notion that, well, if we are going to engage in trade and diplomacy with the Spanish, not as a subordinated, subjugated people, but rather as equals sitting at the table, then we are going to have to, to some degree, mirror and replicate the kind of top-down structure that the Spanish have. So the Span- so the Comanches are centralizing, but not necessarily because they are becoming more dependent on or subordinate to the Spanish. Additionally, even though the Spanish saw themselves as trying to establish this subordinate relationship or this dominating relationship with the Comanches, the Comanches themselves did not interpret their relationship with the Spanish this way. Instead, they kind of saw themselves in a more kind of familial or kinship relationship with the Spanish. And they did not view themselves as, oh, we are the lesser party in this relationship. So in some ways, the Spanish attempts to impose this particular model or this particular cultural understanding of how they are relating to the Comanches ends up failing because the Comanches don't get to see things through Spanish eyes. Additionally, even though you do get some more centralization from the Comanches, even though you start to have the situation of these more powerful chiefs and then kind of going down the ladder of kind of lower level chiefs. Consensus politics was still the rule of the day. So even though Comanche society and Comanche politics are starting to adopt some of these more centralized structures, at the end of the day, consensus was still the means of making political decisions among the Comanches. So even though you had these powerful higher up chiefs, they couldn't simply just impose their will upon everyone else. They still needed to go out and to cultivate support, and they needed to still persuade their fellow Comanches that their way was right. And if their motives came across as suspect, if there was a sense among other Comanches that 
a certain chief was advocating a certain policy because it was in their self-interest or because they wanted to just accumulate more power for themselves, there was a risk that they were going to lose standing or status or simply power altogether. So even though you do have some of this political centralizing that is happening among the Comanches, it is still the case that Comanche chiefs have to go to the larger population for support. They are not in a position to simply say, oh, well, this is what the Spanish want us to do, so I'm going to make you all do this thing. That they still need to get buy-in from the larger nation. And so, for all of these reasons, the Spanish attempt to impose this kind of top-down control and try to impose their power on the Comanches, but in practice, it doesn't really work out. This vision, this model that the Spanish imagine they are imposing on the Comanches doesn't really work, and the Comanches are still able to maintain a lot of their power in the southwest and the southern plains. And there's a couple of examples that illustrate this. So, for example, in the late 1780s, there is this issue that emerges between the Spanish and the Comanches around the issue of captives. So, back when they had gotten peace earlier in the in the mid-1780s, one of the terms of the peace was that the Comanches were going to return Spanish captives. Now, the Spanish had understood this as they're just going to turn them over for free. They're just going to hand us back our people. The Comanches, however, did not understand it in the same way. They did not interpret this in the same way. Probably deliberately did not interpret this in the same way. And instead, they do return captives, but they insist on ransoms from the Spanish. So they insist that the Spanish pay up in order to get their captives back, which had not been the way that the Spanish had understood the agreement that they had with the Comanches. Additionally, in the early 1790s, the... Comanches break the peace accords that the Spanish had brokered with the Utes and the Navajos, and they end up going to war with them, once again kind of over competition for different resources and different markets. So the Spanish had kind of set up this peace among the different native tribes, and they had brokered these treaties and these accords, and the Comanches in the early 1790s are basically, oh, screw it, we're going to go to war because it's in our self-interest to do so. So, so all of these examples kind of illustrate the ways in which the Spanish want to think of themselves as controlling the Comanches, but in practice, the Comanches still retain a lot of autonomy, and they're still able to really do what they want and ignore the Spanish when they want to. So as we now get into the 1790s, and we start to get into the turn into the 19th centuries, we're going into the 1800s, the fears of the Spanish of an expansionist United States start to come to pass. So by the end of the 18th century, by the end of the 1700s, the Americans start pushing into Spanish-held Louisiana. Now, the Spanish, because of the agreements they had brokered, they had counted on the Comanches to serve as a buffer. Remember, that had been their logic back in the 1780s. They thought, if we can get peace with these eastern native tribes, they can be this kind of wall against American expansion. And that's what they had kind of agreed to when they had ended hostilities with the Eastern Comanches in 1785. However, again, in another show of Comanche power, the Comanches kind of ignore this and they start trading with the Americans. (laughs) 
because they see, oh, great, look, another op- another economic opportunity, more people to trade with, more outlets for our goods, more places that we can get manufactured goods, and they start turning to the Americans and start trading with them. So this whole Spanish strategy of we're going to use the Native Americans as a buffer starts falling apart. And in part because of that, Spain starts looking to offload their louisiana territory because they're starting to see the americans pour in they're seeing that the comanches aren't really holding up their end of the bargain to serve as a kind of buffer and so they're like okay we gotta like wash our hands of this situation and so in 1795 spain starts talks with france to sell louisiana back to them and remember when i'm talking about louisiana here i'm not just referring to the state of louisiana i'm really referring to the whole kind of middle of the united states which they do in 1801. So in 1801, there is a treaty where Spain cedes Louisiana back to France. However, three years later, in 1804, France sells Louisiana to the U.S. and Louisiana purchase. So this is really now the, like, the worst nightmare of the Spanish has now come to pass, which is they have had this whole idea, well, we're going to try to set up the situation where we're going to try to keep the Spanish the Americans out of Louisiana and by extension out of New Spain and they had come up with this whole alliance system with the Native Americans and that falls apart and now worst of all Louisiana is now part of the United States and the United the Americans are once again right on the Spanish doorstep now they are now they have territory west of the Mississippi and they can start pushing you know right up against Texas they're right there Right exactly where the Spanish don't want them. And so this is is really just a kind of – this kind of becomes a headache and really kind of source a problem for the Spanish going into the early 1800s. So I talked about how the Comanches sort of broke and ignored the agreement that they made with Spain and started trading with the Americans as they were starting to move westward. The Comanches were drawn to the Americans really for a couple of different reasons. So one of them was that the Americans were more generous than the Spanish's trading partners. Spanish supplies, particularly of guns and powder, were unreliable, again, in terms of from a kind of supply chain perspective, whereas the Americans had a lot more goods and they also had a lot better quality goods. So the Comanches are very much attracted to that. And that's one of the reasons why they are willing to ignore the agreement that they had made with the Spanish, because there's some real good commercial opportunities with the Americans. Also, the way that the Americans went about trading with the Comanches was different. So when it came to trade with the Spanish, a lot of that happened within Spanish territory in different cities and towns. So the Comanches would go into Spanish towns and then they would engage with trade there. In the case of the Americans, a lot of American merchants were folks who were striking out on their own. They were venturing westward and they were going into Comanche territory and they were living amongst them. They were eating amongst them. And so they were, whereas the Comanches had to go to the Spanish, the Americans were going to the Comanches. And that was very attractive to the Comanches. It allowed them to establish more of a kind of kinship, almost familial type relationship with the Americans because the Americans were there living amongst them, sleeping amongst them, eating amongst them and such. And so for all of those reasons... They, the Comanches establish 
a really strong rapport with the American traders. So the the situation with the Comanches in the east starts to kind of deteriorate further, right? The Comanches are kind of being drawn closer into the American orbit. The Americans are pushing further west. The Comanches, in addition to welcoming American traders, they are also end up providing a safe haven for American revolutionaries who are looking to claim Texas for the United States. So in addition to American merchants who are coming into, into eastern Texas, you also have Americans who are looking to pretty much just convert Texas into American territory and settle it and make it a part of the United States and kind of break it away from Spain proper or from New Spain proper. And so the situation is increasingly kind of perilous in kind of eastern Texas and up there. Ultimately, in the 1820s, Spanish colonial rule in North America comes to an end. So in 1821, there's a wave of revolutions that spread really kind of all across New Spain, so in Central America, in South America. And as a result of that, Spanish rule in North America comes to an end, but also crucially, their rule in the Southwest comes to an end. So in the 1820s, you see the end of the kind of Spanish period in the Southwest. And all of this territory in the Southwest and the Southern Plains now becomes part of an independent Mexico. So we have a really kind of important shift that happens in 1821, where it is the end of the kind of colonial period that had really existed all the way back to the start of our, our story, back in the very end of the 16th century going through the 1600s and the 1700s, and now we are in the period of the Southwest where you have the independent Mexican state. And this new Mexican state moves very quickly to try and establish and maintain good relations with the Comanches because the, they recognize that the Comanches are a powerful force in their new territory. And this new Mexican state is rather weak. So in the fall of 1822, the Mexican government signs a peace treaty with the Eastern Comanches, wherein the Comanches are guaranteed duty-free trade in a wide variety of goods. And in addition, the Mexican government requests that the Comanches notify Mexican officials of anyone who comes into their territory for the purposes of explorations, i.e., this is referring to the Americans. The Mexicans know that the Americans have their eyes on parts of Mexico, and they pretty much tell the Comanches, hey, if there are any explorers, if there are any American settlers who are coming in, it looks like they are trying to establish a foothold, let us know so that we can deal with them. However, even with this peace treaty that the Mexican government hammers out with the Comanches, the Comanches continue their practice of raiding and trading with Texas. So once again, in a show of their own autonomy and their own strength, the Comanches on the one hand are willing to sign this agreement with Mexico, but at the same time they're willing to go, look, we will still act in ways that are beneficial to us, that we see are advantageous to us. So you still have this situation where the Comanches are raiding different Mexican settlements in Texas and then trading with other elements. They're continuing to trade with the Americans. And so the the northern frontier of Mexico, as far as Texas is concerned, is pretty rocky because you've got the combination of 
the Comanches continuing their raiding, and then you've got all these Americans who are pushing in. And so in response to all this, in 1824, Mexico does something that, on paper, sounds counterintuitive, but had a logic that made sense to them at the time, which is that in 1824, Mexico opens up its northern provinces, and particularly the province of Texas, to immigration in order to deal with the dual threat of Comanches and the Americans. So they pretty much adopt a kind of open border policy in the northeast, in that kind of Texas region, and they say, okay, if folks want to move in, particularly if Americans want to move in, come on in. You can settle in this territory freely. Now, it's ain't counterintuitive because you're probably at this point listening and thinking, well, why would they do that? If their concern is, oh, the Americans are going to come in and try to chip away at Texas and try to take it, why is the response that, oh, we're just going to let you come in freely? How does that make sense? Well, this was the logic that the Mexican government had. They thought that if instead of treating the settlers who are already coming in as a kind of hostile, aggressive foreign force, if instead of treating them that way, we just invited them in and say, hey, come settle freely in Mexico. We're going to let you come in. We're not going to resist. That that would allow Mexico to turn these settlers into loyal subjects and then in turn provide a buffer against both raiding Comanches and expansionist Americans. So there was this notion that they could embark on this project of they could allow these some of these Americans to come in and these Americans, by virtue of settling in Mexican lands would eventually become loyal Mexican subjects. They would become loyal to the Mexican state. And then therefore, they would serve as a kind of frontier defensive force against both the Comanches who are continuing their raiding and also those Americans who just wanted to come and plunder and take away territory and make it a part of the United States. This ends up not working for a couple of reasons. This, this whole project ends up kind of falling apart. The Mexican strategy of having these settlers serve as a kind of buffer against the Comanches depended on the settlers really settling in the interior of Texas, so kind of in central Texas, because that's really where the bulk of Comanche attacks were. So in order for this strategy to work out from Mexico, all these settlers that they were inviting in for this open border strategy, they really had to go to central Texas. Instead, what the Americans ended up really doing is they're really settling in east Texas. And they're doing that for two reasons. One is they want to stay connected to American trade networks to the east. And also they want to stay away from Comanche attacks. So the Mexicans had invited them and the Americans in with this logic of, hey, come settle and be a buffer against the, these attacking Comanches. The Americans come in and they're like, we don't want to deal with these attacking Comanches. We're going to stay away from that. It's your, your problem. You deal with it. We're going to be over here. So that ends up not working. And so the effect that ends up happening is that as you get into the 1820s and you get into the 1830s, is that effectively you get a situation where Texas split in two, where you have on the one hand an American-dominated east half. You get all these American settlers who are now coming in because of this open border policy that Mexico set up. And then you have a west half of Texas, so kind of central to western Texas, that is under regular Comanche attack. And it is this east half of Texas where you have this large American settler population that in 18... 35 declares independence from Mexico proper and launches what is known as the Texas Revolution. And what's interesting is that on the one hand, what you see is that Comanches end up creating the conditions under which the Texas Revolution and Texas independence is allowed 
is able to take place because it is their raiding that then forces the hand of the Mexicans to say, okay, we're going to adopt this open border policy. And then therefore you get large in-migration of American settlers. And then those American settlers end up going saying, hey, we want to declare independence and we want to go be a part of the United States. And that's ultimately what happens. In addition, one of the things that you see that happen in the Texas Revolution is that the Americans use the reality of Comanche attacks as proof of the unfitness of Mexicans to rule. So they're pointing the Comanches and saying, look, the Mexicans are not able to deal effectively with this threat, with these raiders. Therefore, they are not fit to govern this land. And therefore, we should be able to govern it because we, we're going to be able to deal with the problem of raiding more effectively than the Mexicans can. Because clearly the Mexicans can't deal with it. That was the kind of logic and the argument that the American revolutionaries in Texas were making. So you've got that. So I'm going to put a pause in the Texas situation here for just a few minutes right here in 1835. We're going to circle back to what ends up happening in Texas because I want to talk about something else really important that is happening also kind of around this same time in the early to mid-1830s. So on the one end, you have this situation where the situation in Texas is becoming increasingly volatile and then it ultimately culminates in the Texas Revolution and the Texas Declaration of Independence from Mexico. The other thing that is important that is happening and that is kind of upsetting the ecosystem of the Midwest of the United States and kind of the, the Central Plains area is that in 1830, the United States implements what is known as the Indian Removal Act. And the Indian Removal Act was passed for the purposes of forcibly displacing Native peoples who lived in the southeastern United States. So living chiefly in the Carolinas, in Georgia, in Alabama, Mississippi, and forcing them west so as to allow those areas of the southeastern United States to be opened up to white settlement. And so the Indian Removal Act directly affects five tribes that are living in the southeast. It's the Choctaws, the Chickasaws, the Creek, the Seminole, the Cherokee. And so with the Indian Removal Act, these five tribes are forcibly expelled from the southeast, and they are relocated to an administrative region that the United States government has designated as Indian Territory. And so Indian Territory is located more or less in what is now the states of Oklahoma and Kansas. So right about that, smack dab in the middle of the country. So at the same time that you have this volatile situation in Texas that is happening in the early to mid-1830s, you are also having large numbers of displaced Native peoples moving into Indian Territory. And these refugee Indians are butting right up against Comanche lands. Because remember, the Comanches are right there in Texas. They're not in eastern Texas, north, central Texas. They're right about there. And these refugee Indians are coming into Oklahoma and Kansas. So they're right there. And once these populations have been resettled, they naturally now need to eke out a life for themselves. And they start pushing into Comanche bison lands kind of in Oklahoma and kind of into northern Texas and the Texas Panhandle. And this ends up triggering conflict with the Comanches. Now, now the Comanches are dealing with this huge new population of eastern Native Americans that have been forcibly removed to the middle part of the country. And those 
native peoples are now a source of competition for resources. And so you start to see some fighting that is happening between these refugee Indians on the one hand and the Comanches. And so in August of 1835, the Americans kind of step in and they broker peace between the Comanches and these newly relocated Indians. And ultimately what happens there is that the Comanches are able to gain some benefits from these new displaced populations moving into their territory. So the refugee Indians, even though in the course of their displacement, they were not able to bring much with them, they did manage to bring to their new home some manufactured and agricultural goods that they were able to trade with the Comanches. So they did kind of emerge as trading partners, which ended up being valuable for the Comanches. Also, the relocated native people's provided a boon to the slave trade that was already existing in the Southwest because not because they themselves were being taken as captives by the Comanches, but because these displaced native peoples themselves had slaves. They had roughly about 5,000 enslaved blacks who they brought with them over the course of their relocation. And so those slaves ended up entering the Comanche slave market and network that already kind of existed in the central plains in the southwest and in addition it, the arrival of these new native populations did end up providing some opportunities for new markets so the comanches were able to, for instance to sell bison robes to these newly relocated people which ends up contributing to an overhunting of bison that i'm actually going to talk about a little bit later on but yeah you do have this also the situation of the effect of the indian removal act and this new population of native peoples kind of moving into the kind of northern borders of Comancheria, which initially sparks conflict, but then they're able, the Comanches are able to kind of establish a peace and end up kind of trading with them. So I just wanted to kind of do that as an insert. So now that we've kind of gotten that out of the way, let's, let's go back to Texas. Let's go, because now we're getting into the kind of mid to late 1830s. So... When Texas declared independence from Mexico, Texas had banked on immediate absorption in the United States. They sort of assumed that, okay, they were going to break away, and then immediately the U.S. was going to come in and say, hey, you're part of America now. That doesn't happen, though. So for reasons that I'm not going to get into here because it'd be like a whole side thing, the annexation of Texas becomes this kind of domestic political lightning rod within the United States, and most politicians are kind of afraid to touch it. And so as a consequence, Texas is spends the first decade post breaking away from Mexico as an independent republic. So really, they're just kind of from the mid-1830s to the mid-1840s. They're kind of just chilling there on their own. They're, they're waiting for the Americans to do their part, but the Americans are kind of slow walking this. And so one of the consequences of that, of being pretty much for all intents and purposes an independent nation, is that the... Texans now have to come up with their own Comanche policies. They have to find their own way of dealing with them. And Texas policy early on ends up being rather contradictory. So the first president of the Republic of Texas, a guy by the name of Sam Houston, he tries to seek a diplomatic path with the Comanches. So he's trying to really kind of establish a friendship and a rapport with the Comanches. However, the Texas Congress ends up undermining this when they open up native territories in Texas to white settlers. So you've got Sam Houston on the one hand who's trying to pursue this policy of peace and friendship, and then you've got the legislature saying, no, you know what, we're just going to 
we're going to allow white settlers to just go into Comanche lands. In 1838, there is a presidential election, and in it, Sam Houston loses to a guy named uh, Mirabu B. Lamar, who ends up launching a war against the Comanches, really with the goal of eliminating them entirely. It's really a kind of genocidal war through the idea of really kind of cleansing Texas of its Comanche populations. So fighting happens for a couple of years. In 1840, the Comanches are ravaged by an epidemic of smallpox, and this starts to motivate them to pursue peace with Texans because they are seeing their populations really hurt by this disease. In addition, by the time you get to the early 1840s, the Texans themselves are growing kind of tired of war and of all the men and the resources they have to commit to this war with the Comanches. And so in 1841, Lamar is ousted in favor of Sam Houston. So Sam Houston once again becomes president of Texas because there is this kind of simmering war exhaustion. And so as a result of that, in October 1844, you get a peace agreement between the Republic of Texas and the Comanches. That is a treaty of Teocana Creek. And what this treaty does is that it sets a firm western border between Texas and the Comanches, so the territory that the white American settlers in Texas are claiming versus the territory that is going to be held and occupied by the Comanches. And what this treaty does is it has the effect of signing away almost half of Texas to the Comanches. So the the Texans make a rather significant concession to the Comanches and pretty much say that half of the territory that they are claiming as part of the Texas Republic, we are going to set aside for Comanche settlement. There's a whole, again, this is something I'm not going to get into. There's a whole dispute all this, this whole time that is happening between Texas and Mexico over where the boundaries of Texas are. Texas is claiming a fairly large territory and Mexico is insisting that the Republic of Texas is really just kind of East Texas. So that's a whole thing that is happening. But yeah, suffice it to say, the Republic of Texas makes this huge land concession to the Comanches as part of getting this peace agreement in the 1840s. So this is all stuff that's been kind of happening in the East. So you've had a lot of, there's a lot of kind of shifting geopolitics in the East as a function of the collapse of colonial empires and the revolution in Texas, and then United and the Louisiana Purchase, and then United States policy towards Native Americans. So all of that is really kind of changing the landscape to the East. I want to shift geographically and shift a little back in time to tell the story of what's happening in the Southwest, because really we've just been focusing on Eastern Texas and the kind of Central Plains region. But I want to kind of pick up back with what's happening in the Southwest. So let's let's go back West and we're going to go kind of back to 1800, which is where we kind of last left the Southwest. So by the time we get to the start of the 19th century, we're starting to see some changes happening in the Southwest, particularly in these trading networks. That the Comanches have set up. So the trade routes that exist within New Mexico start shifting east, kind of into Comanche territory. So whereas the trade had really been this kind of north-south, where goods were kind of moving from Mexico proper up into Spanish New Mexico and then into the Comanches, and then the Comanches were trading kind of southward, you start to see New Mexico trade shifting east out into Comanche territory. And so this has the effect of 
making New Mexico less dependent on Mexico proper, because now the settlers and the colonists in New Mexico are getting more and more of their goods from the eastern Comanche trading networks than they are from the southern Mexico trading networks. Much in the same way that the Louisiana Purchase opened up you know, eastern Texas and the Central Plains to American settlement, the Louisiana Purchase also has the effect of opening up the southwest to American settlers and merchants, because now Americans are able to go all the way into the Midwest and the Great Plains, and they're pushing even further out into the Pacific. So now Americans are able to get into some of that New Mexican market, thanks to the Louisiana Purchase. And so much as what was happening in the situation out east in Texas, there is this growing there is this growing withering of loyalties that the Comanches have to the Spanish because they had had this relationship for a very long time, this trading relationship with the Spanish. But now, again, mirroring the situation to the east in Texas, all these Americans are showing up with all their goods and the Comanches are like, great, we want to trade with them and they're better trading partners than you, the Spanish, are. And the Spanish find themselves in a situation where they feel pressure to continue supplying gifts to the Comanches as a way to buy their loyalty. I talked a little bit earlier about the importance of gift giving, that it was this kind of symbol of friendship and alliance. So the Coman the Spanish are feeling like, okay, we just got to keep upping the gifts. You got to keep giving them to the Comanches so that they stay on our good side and they stay allied to us. But the Comanches continue trading with the Americans anyway, which ultimately has the effect of undermining the Spanish goal of subjugation. Because remember, if you think back, that had been the Spanish project this whole time was this idea of, okay, we're going to create this network of dependence where the Comanches are relying on us for goods. And so that way we're going to be able to control them. And the effect of all these Comanche trading networks and greater American penetration is just like the Comanches can increasingly like not really care what the Spanish want and they can trade with whomever they want. And so the Spanish grip on the Comanches is starting to loosen as you get into the early 19th century, in the same way that it is out to the east in Texas. The end of Spanish rule in 1821, with these wave of revolutions, results in a flood of Americans into the southwest. One of the other effects of the collapse of Spanish rule and this transition to the new independent Mexican state is that the tributes that were going to the Comanches kind of dried up. So again, all of these gifts that had been flowing from the Spanish colonists up north into New Mexico in order to pacify the Comanches, those supply chains really kind of dry up because this New Mexican state doesn't really have the resources to keep on with this practice of gift giving. And because these gifts wither away, the Comanches kind of take offense of that because they had sort of expected this as a part of their relationship. And as a result, they start to resume their policy of raiding New Mexico. And so what happens in the early 1820s is there was an end to nearly 35 years of relative peace in the southwest, in the territory of New Mexico. The Comanches are once again raiding in order to get the goods that they are no longer receiving from the Mexican state. So the, the kind of overall effect starts to happen in the southwest. The combination of both the New Mexico trading networks shifting to the east, kind of into Comanche territory, as well as New Mexico's continuing 
frontier status even within the New Mexican state is that New Mexico increasingly acquires this kind of quasi-independent status as we go into the 1830s. As their ties with the Comanches deepen, they become less and less a kind of Mexican province and more effectively for all intents and purposes a kind of Comanche province. Now, I talked about how to the east the Comanches had been dealing with some conflict with other tribes as a result of the Indian Removal Act. There's also starts to be some trouble in the West. So in the late 1820s, you have the Cheyennes and the Arapahoes, they cut ties with the Comanches. So they had been in a kind of alliance friendship network with the Comanches for a long time. That ends up ending in the late 1820s going into 1830s, and the Cheyenne and Arapaho start looking to push into Comanche territory, largely again out of economic motivations, they want to get in on the trade that the Comanches have. And so you get conflict that kind of breaks out there between the Comanches on the one hand and then the Cheyennes and the Arapahoes on the other, kind of through the 1830s. And then ultimately that resolved in what is known as the Great Peace in 1840. So by the time we get into the 1830s and the 1840s, once we get into this period, we are really kind of starting to see the Comanche territory and the Comanche network really at its kind of greatest extent. So they, at this point now, if we look, the Comanches have developed a, a really extensive trading network that goes all the way north into the Great Plains and then all the way south into the Gulf of Mexico and then kind of east all the way towards the Mississippi River. And this network that they developed, one that was both economic on the one end and political on the other, has a lot of consequences for the region. On the one hand, it is a source of economic prosperity because all of these different populations and peoples are linked together through trade. It is a source of security because the Comanches are able to provide safety and peace across this wide swath of territory. And it also allows for cultural exchange. So as all of these different peoples and populations are being brought together, you start to see cultural exchange. And one of the things that you start to see is that, is that because the Comanches are very much the dominant power in the region is that many other tribes in the southwest and in the Great Plains region start to ad adapt facets of Comanche culture. So, for instance, they adapt religious practices, fashions, language becomes really big. So, Comanche language proliferates in a lot of the trading towns. So, when you go into a lot of the trading towns in, let's say, New Mexico in the 1820s and the 1830s and the 1840s, you'll find even the non-Comanche populations, you will see the American traders and New Mexican traders speaking Comanche and conducting all their trade in Comanche because it is kind of seen as the lingua franca of the region. And another thing that you that you see is that members of other native tribes start entering Comanche territory and become part of their society. So you start to see some integration of different native populations and them being kind of turned into Comanche. So you're starting to see other native populations coming into their territory. They're living amongst the Comanches. They are allowed to intermarry. Some of them attain prominent social positions. So you're seeing all of this kind of integration that starts happening, not just politically, not just economically, but also socially and culturally. That's really significant. And all of it has the effect of buttressing and bolstering Comanche power. And the Comanches, for their part, 
really embraced this policy of open borders, of, of allowing all of these different populations, whether it's other native peoples, whether it is the Americans to come in, for a lot of different reasons. There was a lot of advantages that it had for them. So on the one hand, from a material perspective, it gave them access to markets and gave them access to new technologies, different manufactured goods, foodstuffs, livestock, etc., etc. Also, it had the effect of buttressing and supplanting their own populations. Because I've talked a few times about at different points of different disease epidemics that kind of ravaged the Comanche populations. And this starts to happen with more frequency as you get into the early and mid-19th century. So you get several different smallpox epidemics break out. You have an epidemic of cholera that breaks out in 1849. And so one of the things that you start to see is, as you get into from the early to the mid-19th century is that Comanche populations start to kind of slowly shrink a little bit. Remember, because I talked about that that number of like 40,000 that you get to by the time you get to like the 1770s and the 1780s. By the time you get to the 1820s and 1830s, it's still pretty large. It's about 20 to 30,000, but it is lower than that peak. So there is a kind of decline in populations because of all these disease outbreaks. And so the idea is that, well, if you allow all these other populations to come into your territory, if you allow yourself to ritualistically adopt members of other native tribes and turn them into Comanches, then you can buttress the populations that you are losing through disease and such. So so you've got that whole situation. So we've talked about the Comanche situation in the Southwest. We have talked about what is happening in the East, in Texas, and in the Central Plains. There is one other front of Comanche expansion and territorial acquisition that we need to talk about that is really important because it sets the stage for what happens in the 1840s. And that is what is happening in northern Mexico proper. So now we're not talking about the territory of Mexico that becomes part of the United States. Now we're talking about the lands that is now northern Mexico as we know it. So in the late 1700s, the early 1800s, the kind of turn of the 19th century, the Comanches begin pushing into northern Mexico. So they start moving kind of south of the Rio Grande River. So the Rio Grande is, if you look right now at a map, it is the border between Texas and Mexico. And so the Comanches, for the most part, are kind of up until this point, it kind of remained north of the Rio Grande. So they've been kind of up in Texas that way and then, you know, to the northwest in New Mexico. Once you get to the turn of the 19th century, they start actually pushing south of the Rio Grande and start going into what we now know as Mexico. And again, a lot of that motivation is economic. So on the one hand, they need more territory for raiding livestock. So that by the time we get to the 1820s, a lot of the traditional lands that the Comanches had raided for, let's say, horses or for other livestock, a lot of that had become depleted. So a lot of the lands in, let's say, the southwest or in the central plains. And so now they needed new lands to get new animals from, both for their to support their own populations and also in order to trade commercially. Additionally, the other motivation for them to expand into northern Mexico was to bolster their slave market. So they were looking to acquire both Apache and Mexican captives that they can then turn around and enslave and then sell in the slave markets that they are operating. So as we get into the early 19th century, we are starting to see the Comanches penetrate northern Mexico to a greater extent. The Mexican federal government, for its part, did little to combat Comanche raiding. 
mostly because they viewed it as a local problem. They thought that this was something that the provinces in the north needed to deal with themselves and muster their own men and material out to deal with. Additionally, they are also much more focused on you know, larger geopolitics. There was a concern within the Mexican government about the threat of either American or British invasion of Mexico. And so they are really trying to fortify themselves against that threat and not super interested in dealing with the Comanche threat. And so as a consequence, the repeated Comanche raiding of northern Mexico leaves a lot of the northern provinces devastated and weakened. They lose a lot of life in this conflict. They lose a lot of resources. They lose a lot of livestock. And the significance of this weakening of Mexico by the Comanches is that it creates this situation of instability in northern Mexico that the United States is able to exploit when the Mexican-American War breaks out in 1846. Now, I'm not going to get into here like the actual causes of the Mexican-American War and the kind of lead up to it. Suffice it to say for this purpose, it is pretty much a land grab. The U.S. goes to war in Mexico in order to get both Texas and also the Southwest. There is the thinnest attempt at making another pretense, but this is just a land grab. And one of the things that the American army remarks upon as they are waging war with Mexico is just how beleaguered and beaten down and scattered and weak the Mexican army seems to be. The Mexican-American War is very short. It only lasts a year and nine months, and the Americans are able to defeat the Mexicans rather handily. But the reason they are able to do so is because particularly northern Mexico had spent decades up to this point being systematically weakened by the Comanches. The Comanche raiding of New Mexico sets up this foundation of internal weakness within Mexico that then makes the project of American expansion into the Southwest much easier and allows the Americans to sweep through and then ultimately claim Texas and the Southwest when the Mexican-American War ends. So a lot of American expansion in the Southwest is built on the backs of the work that the Comanches had done for their own raiding and their own expansion. So, okay, we have now swam across a great expense of time, but we are now officially at the end of the Mexican-American War. So we are now in 1848. The war ends in 1848. You get the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, and this is where Mexico cedes what we now know as the Southwest of the United States. So Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Utah, Nevada, etc. All of that is territory that is now given over to the United States. I want to pause the clock here for a minute. We're going to pick up with this history, but I want to stop the clock for a minute. Because up to this point, we have talked about the Comanches without really talking about the Comanches. So I want to just step back and kind of do a kind of broad survey of what Comanche society sort of looks like, particularly at this point in time in the middle of the 19th century, when arguably they have reached the kind of zenith of their power. So. We talked about this all the way at the beginning of the episode, but it bears reinforcing that the horse was the bedrock foundation of the Comanche way of life. Everything the Comanches are able to acquire over the course of the 1700s and 1800s, all of the territory, all of these commercial networks that they were able to establish, all of this raiding that they were able to do, is built literally on the backs of horses. This is the source of their power. And Comanches 
have a lot of horses. It is estimated that by the late 1700s to the early 1800s, Comanches have about four horses per capita. So they have four horses for every Comanche person. And on top of that, they have a surplus, they have a kind of reserve of horses of anywhere from 90 to 120,000 horses. So they have more than enough horses to supply everybody within their nation and then some. And they can use this surplus to trade and to supply other peoples with. Maintaining their horse population required the Comanches to undergo a significant shift in their way of life. So in order to ensure that they had enough environmental resources to maintain these horse populations, i.e. enough grasses for the horses to graze, enough water for them to drink, the Comanches undergo this shift in terms of their in terms of how they're supporting themselves. They move from a practice of foraging, basically traveling around and trying to gather up whatever foodstuffs they need and such, to a mixed system of both hunting and what is known as pastoralism. So the actual practice of raising and maintaining herds of animals. So within this economy, particularly within this kind of pastoral society that the Comanches are setting up in order to raise and maintain these large horse herds that they have, there's some very clear divisions of labor within Comanche society in order to get all of this work done, particularly to maintain all of these herds and these populations. And the division of labor that happens within the Comanche society was very much defined by age and by gender. So if you look among men, adult men were in charge of a couple of things. So the adult men were responsible for, on the one hand, figuring out camp movements, so figuring exactly where the Comanche camp was going to move and settle at different parts of the year, when and where to do grazing, so to where to actually move the horse population, what were the best lands for grazing, where were the best places in order to get sources of water. The adult men are also responsible for all the raiding that takes place, so all the raiding for horses and other livestock that I talked about earlier, that is all done by adult Comanche men. They are responsible for capturing and taming wild horses, so training them, making sure that they can actually be domesticated and used. And they are also responsible for horse breeding. And actually, the Comanches end up gaining reputation as very good horse breeders. So all of those things are the responsibility and the purview of adult Comanche men. They're responsible for some of the really vital tasks in terms of supporting the Comanche population and those under their under their stewardship. Young men, on the other hand, they were responsible really for the kind of grunt work of tending to and maintaining the animals. So a lot of that kind of day-to-day -day labor to make sure that the populations were healthy and had what they needed, that was really the purview of younger men, whereas the adult men were engaged in these other practices. Women, on the other hand, had numerous responsibilities. So in certain circumstances, they may be helping the young men taking care of the horses and of other livestock. They were also responsible for dressing buffalo skins, so actually converting buffalo skins into clothing or into material to build teepees. They were responsible for cooking, they were responsible for pitching and setting up teepees, etc., things like that. A lot of the kind of domestic labor was the purview of women. By the early 1800s, the Comanche herds, Comanche livestock, started to expand from horses into also 
encompassing mules, and mules were the Comanches adapted mules because they were very good for hauling goods across great distances. Like they're very kind of sturdy pack animals, whereas with horses they're somewhat more delicate, so you couldn't necessarily do that. Versus with mules, you can just tie up a bunch of heavy stuff and then have the mules drag it along. So the Comanches kind of start expanding their herds and the composition of their herds to accommodate different animals. Now, tending to these herds, naturally, as you can imagine, you've got all these horses. And then on top of these horses, you're bringing these other animals. You're now also starting to tend to mules and trying to you know, build up that population. That requires, naturally, a sizable labor force. You need a lot of people to look after all these animals, to protect them, to care for them, to feed them, and so on, to clean them. And so one of the things that goes hand in hand with this growing livestock population is there is a growing embrace within Comanche society of polygamy. So, which is to say of the practice of men taking on multiple wives. Now, this had already been something that had existed within Comanche society prior to you know, the turn of the 19th century, the period that we're talking about. But polygyny starts to become more common in this period as there is a growing economic incentive for it. Because what this means from a kind of just material perspective, from a kind of economic perspective, is that more wives translates into equals more children. And both of those, both more wives and more children, equals more laborers to look after the animals. So there is this economic incentive that starts to emerge for Comanche men to take on multiple wives, because that is a key source of labor in order to tend to these very large herds. However, one of the effects of this, the fact that this practice of polygyny is expanding and is embraced more because of this economic motivation, is that it leads to a diminishment in the status of Comanche women within the society, because husbands are increasingly looking upon their wives, not necessarily as just partners as equals, but rather as a kind of labor source, as someone who can do all of this grunt work that is needed in order to maintain the herds and maintain the camp. So Comanche women at the time have all of these responsibilities that they are shouldering, but it is not translating into a particularly valued social status, is one way to, to put it, or a particularly esteemed social status. So you've got, on the one hand, polygyny that is being used as a means in order to acquire just the, the raw manpower in order to have the labor force that you need to maintain these herds. The Comanche labor force is also being bolstered through slavery, which is something that we have talked about at multiple points so far, which really kind of escalated after 1800. The Comanches start to take in more and more slaves as there is a growing labor demand in order to maintain these huge herds and these huge populations. So for instance, among the eastern Comanches of the Comanches out in Texas, it is estimated that slaves represented anywhere from 10 to 25% of the total population. So you've got polygyny on the one hand, and then you've got slavery on the other hand, and both of these institutions are being used as a way to buttress the labor force and to make sure that the Comanches have the labor force that they need in order to raise these herds and in turn participate in these really extensive commercial trading networks that they've established all across the continental United States. So I talk about slavery within Comanche society, and I kind of hinted at this earlier. Slavery among the Comanches is not the same as the kind of slavery that exists concurrently in, let's say, the United States and the American South at the same time. Slavery had a lot of different functions, you know, so I talked about how slaves could function as a source of labor, and that was, of course, important. 
They were also valuable as a symbolic replacement of lost loved ones. So if, if there were Comanches who died because of, let's say, disease or in war or something like that, a slave could be given to the family or to the tribe as a kind of recompense to kind of fill the place of that person occupied. They were also valuable as just marketable commodities. The Comanches, as I've talked about, engaged in a fairly extensive slave trade, so they were using slaves for their own purposes, but then they were also going and selling them to others who also needed slaves. So there was that too. Additionally, you know, I talked about all these different epidemics that were happening in the early 1800s, how you got smallpox and you had cholera and all that. That also contributed to a need for slaves because you had a lot of Comanches dying from these diseases and you've got to replace those laborers in order to, again, maintain these commercial networks that the Comanches have built. So that is another reason why there was a growing reliance on enslaved populations going into the 19th century. Now, in terms of who was enslaved and how, slavery had a kind of gender dimension among Comanches. So men were generally seen as less adaptable to slave life. So if you had, let's say, a slave raiding that took place where the Comanches were going out to look to take captives for slaves, one of the things that usually happened is that the men were typically killed on the spot, and then it was usually the women and children who were taken in and then made captives and then turned into slaves. The one exception to that generally was, was if the male captives possessed certain special skills. So, for example, if they were literate, that was really important. If they could serve as guides, that was valuable. If they had skills with, let's say, maintaining or repairing weapons, anything like that, if they had those kind of skills, then they were usually kept alive and then enslaved. As I mentioned, Comanches did not have the same understanding of slavery as white Americans at the same time. So for one, they did not have the same kind of firm understandings of race. So you did not have a kind of color line that existed the same way that you did between black and white in the American South or just in the United States more generally. Also, the dynamic, the relationship between masters and slaves wasn't as rigidly defined. So slavery very much looks different and the ways that the Comanches are relating to the enslaved population is not the same way that let's say southern planters are relating to black slaves at the same time east of the Mississippi River in the American South. Those who were captured as slaves typically went through a kind of process of indoctrination. So they would be, when they would be brought back to the Comanche camps, they were stripped of their old clothes, they were dressed up in Comanche wear. They were typically given new names, again, to kind of strip them of their old identity and their old connections. Sometimes they would undergo, this is a particular case of men, they would undergo physical abuse. Sometimes the female captives would undergo sexual abuse. And this was all of this process of kind of breaking their former identity and former lives and sort of turning them into, kind of making them more sort of malleable and, uh, and making them into enslaved peoples. As I mentioned, some slaves were commodified. You did have slaves that were bought and sold the same way that, let's say, black slaves in the United States were being bought and sold. Others, however, were treated almost as kin and sort of bonded to their Comanche owner or Comanche master by blood. So this is one way that, for instance, the slave dynamic within the Comanches differed from, let's say, what's happening in the United States at this time. Also... Slaves could be symbolically adopted into Comanche society, which is, again, something very different from what's happening in the United States at this time. There was no way that an enslaved black person, even someone who, let's say, got their own freedom, would be able to become part of 
American society as a full and equal member of on par with, let's say, a white person. That just simply wasn't available at this time. Versus slaves could become part of Comanche society. Again, this is very gendered, so this is much more likely for Comanche, for women than for men. So enslaved women had a lot more avenues for adoption, chiefly marriage, but also if they were younger, they could be adopted as, as children into a Comanche family. It was less likely for men, not impossible, but un more uncommon. So you've got all of that happening. So you've got this, as I've talked about, you've got this growing herd population and this need to support it and this reliance on these dual systems of both polygyny and slavery in order to get the labor force to maintain this economic system that the Comanches have built up. One of the other effects of this growing Comanche commercialism, the fact that they've established these extensive trade networks, is that it results in the emergence of new class relationships within Comanche society. The horse and these large horse herds became a means for some Comanche men to become extremely wealthy and to ultimately avoid hard labor altogether. So you did start to get this in a small upper crust of very wealthy, very powerful Comanche men who had large numbers of horses under them and who, because of all of this trading and commerce they're having, are able to grow very, uh, very wealthy and are able to display their wealth in a variety of different ways. So you start to see a lot of some of these men dressing very ostentatiously. Another marker of wealth among some Comanche men was that they grew fat. So there are a number of anecdotes of Comanche chiefs in the early to mid-19th century whose claim to fame was that they had a very large girth, and that this was evidence of the large wealth that they had accumulated through all of this trade and through all of these horses that they were able to control. So you've got, on the one hand, this upper crust, very well-to-do Comanche men. On the flip side, at the bottom rung of the kind of class ladder of Comanche society, were young men with few or no horses. And for them, life was much more difficult. So they had, they had a harder time kind of advancing up the social ladder, kind of accumulating the, you know, as we would call it, the kind of capital that you would need in order to become wealthy. That translated into fewer prospects for marriage. And so a lot of them were kind of relegated to a kind of laborer status. They weren't necessarily able to advance up and acquire wealth. And then, you know, most of the Comanches, between most of the Comanche men, were kind of somewhere in the middle between those two extremes, which is to say that they had a decent population of horses under their control, they maybe had a couple wives. They were they had just enough to kind of support themselves, maybe to earn a small surplus that they could sell. But they're neither struggling like these young men at the bottom row, nor are they able to get super wealthy like these other Comanche men. One of the effects of this kind of growing stratification and the fact that you have this kind of growing upper class of Comanche men is that it starts to encourage competition. So you start to have greater efforts among different Comanche men who try to prove themselves to try to climb up this increasingly stratifying society. So, for instance, that would, that would manifest in a lot of different ways. So, so some ways that would appear would be you'd have lower class men. They might go out and, let's say, 
wound the horse that belonged to a wealthy Comanche man. Or they may try to go out and seduce one of his wives. So there would be these little individual actions to try and kind of chip away at some of the wealth and status that these higher-up Comanche men had. But arguably, the dominant way to gain status, and this is something that was you know, true even before you had this growing Comanche network, was battlefield prowess. So if you could go on and you could prove yourself in combat, in battle, and you could show that you were a great warrior, that still very much was one of the surest and one of the oldest ways to advance up the social ladder in Comanche society. Now, I talked a little earlier when I was talking about the Spanish efforts of the Comanches, I talked a little bit about Comanche politics and political organization. I want to get into that a little bit more here in this kind of last bit. So we talk about basically how Comanche society was structured. So the basic unit of Comanche society was, was what was known as the Rancheria. And the Rancheria was a network of allied and extended families. And these were typically around 250 people was the size. And that translated to around about a thousand horses and mules. Because that's, of course, a really kind of important currency in terms of understanding the the, the size and the significance of these units. So, so the rancheria was the kind of foundational building block of Comanche society. These individual rancherias were linked to one another by councils and by an institution that was known as the paraibo. That's a term pretty much meaning chief. So these paraibos were not formally elected. There wasn't a, like a process where there were ballots and votes taken and then you had candidates running for office or something like that, and then the person with the most votes got the position. Rather, it was more that they were informally recognized. So there was a kind of consensus like, oh yeah, that's a you know, that's a strong, powerful, wealthy man. He's a he's a natural leader and he's our leader. And usually because of that, it was usually a wealthy Comanche man. So these councils and these parables would provide these linkages across these rancherias. So you've got, again, just kind of review here. You've got Comanche families, they are linked together through these rancherias, through these networks. And then these rancherias are linked through these councils and through these paraibos, through these chiefs. The paraibos mainly acted as a mediator and a coordinator, and they could be removed if enough people disapproved of them. So they had authority for sure, but they didn't exercise necessarily the kind of top-down authority that we might be familiar with, let's say, like a governor or a president, they were a kind of, they were kind of a facultative, facilitative force. There were a few arenas, though, where privates did exercise significant authority and power. And those were matters of war. So any kind of raiding, any kind of fighting, and also trading with foreigners. So with other tribes or with, let's say, the Americans and such. So those were really crucial areas, war making, raiding, and trading was where the paraibos did, in fact, exercise significant authority. So above that, so above these councils and the paraibos, were assemblies and kind of larger councils. These met relatively more infrequently, and they really dealt with situations of peace and war. So if the Comanches needed to 
go to war with, let's say, another nation or with the Spanish or the Americans or something like that. Like these, you would have these war councils that would be brought together, that would bring together Comanches from kind of all across Comancheria, and they would come together and they would debate whether or not to go to war. And then when it came time for diplomacy, for instance, to hammer out a treaty or anything like that, then these councils would also come together for those situations to kind of gain consensus. Outside of those big situations, the rancherias, these, these basic units, were by and large left free to kind of govern themselves. They operated on a kind of almost confederate model where you would have these larger political units that would come together for these very specific situations. But other than that, these smaller units were kind of left to govern and to rule themselves and to go about their business as they saw fit. So in the absence of really strong, let's say, political unity and units, Comanches were really unified through a shared culture and through a shared set of norms. So there was a kind of broad consensus among Comanche people in the Comanche nation on, for instance, the social importance of wealth. There was a shared legal culture. There was a shared religion that centered on worship of the sun. So all Comanches were considered children of the sun, and that was a kind of unifying force. So whether you were a Comanche living, let's say, out in New Mexico, or you were a Comanche living in eastern Texas, you were all children of the sun. There was that kind of source of unity of seeing everyone as the same. In terms of how Comanches kind of structured their life and their activities, so activities throughout the year were kind of divided by season. So in the winter, the Comanches would typically camp out in winter villages that were set up to kind of ride out the season. And it was in these winter villages where a lot of trade and larger scale political meetings would take place. So in these winter villages, you might have diplomacy taking place, or let's say a peace treaty needed to be hammered out, or you are trading with, let's say, American traders that are coming through. A lot of that would happen in these winter villages in the wintertime. Come the spring, so right around April, this is when the Comanches would emerge from their winter villages and begin roaming. And the focus here in April and the kind of early spring was on feeding and fattening up the horses in order to ready them for the hunt, because the horses are kind of thinning out and kind of starving themselves over the course of the winter. And all of that was in preparation until June, which was the start of the summer hunt. And so in June and then throughout the summer months, you would have the hunt happening and then as you get into like July and August, you also had other activities taking place. So this is where a lot of raiding happened. This is when a lot of other trading would take place, would be in these summer months in the middle of the year. When you get to the fall, though, once you get to September, October, November, then you would get another round of hunting that would be preparation for, you know, locking down, for, for camping down during the winter. And then you get into, of course, December and the winter months, and then the cycle starts again. So that was the kind of basic structure of Comanche life over the course of any given year. So there was a lot of movement, a lot of relocation. You're moving around in terms of hunting for animals, in terms of doing trading, in terms of, let's say, engaging in raiding, in terms of engaging in diplomatic efforts and all of that. There, there's a lot of moving around and it's all activities are structured very seasonally in that way. Okay, so that was just to do a kind of, I wanted to do a step away from the chronology to give a kind of snapshot of what Comanche kind of culture, society, the economy and politics kind of roughly look like 
in this period in the kind of early to mid 19th century. So let's go pick up our story back again where we left off at the end of the Mexican-American War. So I mentioned before, Mexican-American War ends in 1848. The United States lays claim to the Southwest. And it is at this point that the Comanches are at the height of their power. But it is at this very moment in which they have reached their zenith that they are struck by an ecological crisis that will have the effect of laying the foundation for the downfall of Comancheria, for the downfall of this entire network that they have spent decades and centuries cultivating. And this ecological crisis that happens at the very end of the 1840s and going into the 1850s is rooted in the exhaustion of the bison herds. So there's a little bit of ecological math that you have to do here to understand the situation. So if you take into account roughly the number of bison that are across the southwest and the central plains at this time in the mid-19th century. If you factor into that roughly the proportion of bison that reproduce each year, so the rate of reproduction, and you factor in the number of bison who are killed annually through natural causes, essentially, through non-human reasons, so being killed by wolves, for example, or crossing a frozen river and drowning. At most... Around 280,000 bison a year could be killed without risk of depletion. So that was the ceiling. 280,000 a year you could kill without doing damage to the herd, without really kind of thinning the herd. By the 1840s, the Comanches were killing about 175,000 bison a year just for subsistence. So just in order to get the meat that they need and the skins that they need. They were killing about 175,000. Now, that's well below 280,000, so they're okay. It's a lot, but they're okay. So they're killing a lot, but they're not killing enough to do damage to the hearts. On top of that, though, on top of the 175,000, they're killing about an additional 25,000 a year for commercial purposes. So in order to sell bison meat and skins on the market. In addition to that, they allow the removed Indians who had, been, who had come from the southeast into Indian territory, as well as other populations, to hunt on their lands. And so as a consequence of all of this, the fact that the Comanches are killing these large numbers to sustain themselves for their own purposes, and they're killing to feed their markets, and they're allowing other peoples onto their lands to hunt and kill bison, the cumulative effect of all that is they start exceeding that ceiling. They start pushing past that 280,000 a year. So they are starting to really add stress to the bison population. On top of that, in addition to that, the bison are also competing with the Comanche horse herds for natural resources. Because the bison also need to drink water. They also need to graze on grass. But the Comanches have these giant horse herds. They have four horses per capita, as I talked about before. And all of those horses are drinking up water and they're eating up grass. And so there is that kind of ecological competition for resources. And so the combination of all of that, the combination of overhunting and then also this competition for natural resources, means that by the 1840s, the bison herds start to thin out. They're not reproducing enough in order to sustain themselves. On top of that, 1845 sees the start of a drought that kind of sweeps across the southwest and into the Central Plains, that ends up lasting a really long time. That's almost 20 years. It was into the mid-1860s. And this, on top of all these other factors, the competition for resources, the overhunting, 
triggers an ecological crisis. The bison populations drop significantly, and this really just delivers a massive blow to the Comanches. So you are starting to see, once you get late 1840s into the 1850s, you start seeing waves of starvation sweeping across the Comanche lands. The fact that these bison population are declining hampers their economic activities, so they're not able to trade as much with the Americans or other native tribes. Also, they're also not able to trade because large numbers of them are dying because of starvation. So a lot of those trade networks that they built up over the preceding decades, those start to crumble. In the east, the relocated Indians and Indian territory, they increasingly become a source of competition because there is not enough resources to support everybody, which results in growing conflict and violence out to the east. So the effect of all of that is that by the late 1850s, this massive extensive trading network that I'd have been talking about that expanded into the north and down into the south and all the way to the Mississippi Valley, that was largely gone. It had fallen apart because the ecological conditions that were necessary in order to sustain it, the fact that the bison herds are declining, the fact that you have this drought, you can't sustain the horse populations, you can't feed your own people, that all just crumbles once you pull out the rug from underneath that trading network, the trading network is no longer able to sustain itself. At the same time that all of that is happening, at the same time that the Comanches are undergoing this ecological crisis and this wave of starvation, the U.S. is starting to expand westward more aggressively. So you get like the gold rush in California, you start getting construction of railroads and stuff. So you're starting to have Americans pushing into all this territory the U.S. had acquired through the Louisiana Purchase, through the Mexican-American War. And that starts putting pressure on the Comanches too, because now there are all of these white settlers coming into their lands. So for, for example, in Texas, settlers start pushing west of the Comanche lands. Remember, I talked before about how Texas had come up with this treaty where they'd set this border between them and the Comanches, and they'd ceded all this land effectively to the Comanches. Well, by the time you get into the early 1850s, white settlers are just blowing past that, and they're going to Comanche lands. And that is starting to result in conflict in Texas between settlers and the Comanches. And as a result of that, in 1853, Texas starts opening the first reservations in an attempt to begin relocating the Comanche population's out of some of that western territory to open it up for white settlement. Now, some Comanches do agree to move onto these reservations. However, not all of them do. And also, crucially, these reservations end up becoming a launching point for raids. So the Comanches use these reservations as a kind of base of operations for them to then conduct raids into nearby lands to get the livestock and the resources they need. By the end of the 1850s, the combined effect of both this reservation policy and also all of this expanded white settlement is that Comanche territory, which had really swept all across the southwest into western and central Texas, into the central plains, it had really been reduced to the land of kind of southwest Kansas and the Texas and Oklahoma panhandle. So really just the kind of middle of the country. So all this huge territory that the Comanches had just had really shrunk down because of all of these population and ecological pressures that had been placed upon them. And then in 1859, Texas, sort of frustrated by the failure of its reservation policy, they had set up these reservations, but the Comanches were now kind of using them to their own devices to launch these raids. Texas forcibly removes its Comanche populations from the state up north into Indian territory, so up into Oklahoma. So pretty much by the end of the 1850s, the Comanches have been forcibly expelled from Texas, from this land that just a few decades earlier they had populated and had been able to exercise such great 
control and influence over. So by the time we get to the 1860s, the situation for the Comanches is rather dire. Their trade networks have collapsed, their territory has shrunk significantly, they are being corralled onto reservations, they are starving. Of course, in 1860 and 1861, you have the outbreak of the U.S. Civil War. The Comanches remain neutral during the Civil War years. They kind of try to play the, the Union and the Confederacy off one another and try to kind of stay out of it. Interestingly, what happens is when you get to 1865 and the end of the Civil War, there is a small Comanche renaissance that takes place. And that happens for a couple of reasons. So one thing that happens is that in 1865, this drought that had been around the mid-1840s comes to an end. And that allows some of the bison to return. The bison population never rebounds to the extent that it does, you know, prior to the 1840s, but it does come back somewhat. And so that kind of cushions some of the, the, the free fall of the Comanches that have been in for a while. Additionally, the defeat of the Confederacy at the end of the Civil War results in the military occupation of Texas. So pretty much all of the ex-Confederacy is turned into an occupied region by the United States military. And that also has the effect of taking some of the pressure off the Comanches. So in October of 1865, you have the Treaty of Little Arkansas. And this has the effect of, this happens between the Comanches and the United States federal government. And the U.S. in this treaty recognizes Comanche claims to roughly 40,000 square miles of Texas. So it turns out that initially in the after immediate aftermath of the Civil War, the arrival of the American army as a kind of occupying force in the post-Confederate South ends up having this little boon for, for the Comanches. They get some of their territory in Texas back, and that combined with... You know, the end of this drought, the end of this ecological crisis allows their population to kind of bounce back. On top of all that, you know, I mentioned how American troops are occupying Texas. Most U.S. troops are stationed in East Texas because that is where a lot of the bigger cities are, which really leaves West Texas vulnerable to Comanche raiding. And so one of the things you see in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War is the Comanches resuming their raiding of West Texas as they had really kind of before, you know, before the Mexican-American War and before the kind of ecological crisis of the 1850s. The Comanche raids in West Texas target a lot of the traditional targets. So they're, they're raiding for horses. They're raiding for captives and to enslave. There is also a kind of new target for Comanche raiding, and that is cattle. The Comanches had not really done much with cattle before the Civil War. Usually, if they came into contact with cattle in the context of a raid, they would just slaughter them because they weren't particularly interested in them. But what does start to happen after the Civil War is that the Comanches focus on cattle in response to the smaller bison herds because they cannot rely as much on bison for both sustenance and trade. They start to turn their focus onto cattle and both using cattle themselves and selling cattle. And this really contributes to a kind of economic bounce back. So really once you start to get into the late 1860s, it looks like the Comanches are regaining a lot of the power they had lost in the previous decade, decade and a half. The United States government recognizes this. They, they are starting to see that the Comanches are growing as a force again. They are seeing the effects of Comanche raiding in West Texas. And they attempt to kind of put a lid on it. So in 1867, there is a treaty 
that happens between the U.S. government and the Comanches. This is the Treaty of Medicine Lodge Creek. And in that treaty, the U.S. attempts to confine the Comanches to roughly a 5,500-square-mile reservation in southwestern Oklahoma. So the Comanches had kind of burst forth at the end of the Civil War. They had kind of come back in Texas, and the American government kind of looks at this and thinks, oh, shoot, like this is a, this is a problem now. Like, we can't have them freely roaming across these territories and engaging in these raids and also engaging in slavery because the U.S. has you know, just fought a war over slavery and was in the process of outlawing slavery. So like they couldn't allow slavery to continue in these territories. So they're like, okay, we're going to try to rein this back in and try to impose a system of reservations. However, the Comanches, much as they did in earlier decades of Texas, they refused to remain on the reservation land, and they continue this policy of raiding in Texas. Comanche raiding is aided by a shift that happens in American Indian policy at the very end of the 1860s. So in 1869, Ulysses Grant, who becomes president, adopts what is known as the peace policy. And the peace policy tries to move federal Indian policy away from a reliance on military towards more of a policy of education and an attempt to kind of assimilate native populations into white society and white ways. And so as a consequence of that adoption, you start to see some of the demilitarization of reservations. So you start to see the U.S. military pull away from a lot of these reservations, which then creates this outlet for the Comanches to continue with their raiding in western Texas. By the early 1870s, though, there is just the, the, the U.S. frustration with the situation with the Comanches in the Central Plains kind of reaches a boiling point. So in 1871, the U.S. military, frustrated by the continuation of Comanche violence, launches an invasion of Comanche land. So you have this considered military campaign that goes into western Texas, that goes into Oklahoma, really targeting these Comanche territories. And along with armed violence, the U.S. Army also allows white bison hunters to stream into Comanche land. Traditionally, the U.S. Army had been this kind of buffer to kind of keep a lot of bison hunters at bay. But as part of their strategy to break the resolve of these Comanche peoples, they allow white hunters into Comanche lands in order to hunt the, the bison as a kind of practice of economic warfare. And as a result of that, the combination of both military violence and also this economic warfare that is happening, the effect of that is that by 1874... Comanche power is well and truly broken. So by 1874, the U.S. Army is successful in corralling Comanches onto reservations in Indian territory and keeping them there. And really, 1874 marks the end of the free movement of Native peoples in the southwest and the Central Plains. So they are no longer able to kind of roam freely and act freely as they had once before. The, the history and the, the, the story of the Comanches by no means ends here. There is more going into, of course, the 19th century and the 20th century up all the way up to the present day. They, they continue to survive as a nation. But for our purposes, here is where I'm going to end the story. So I realize that was a lot. This is a beefy boy of an episode. I covered a lot of time and a lot of story. 
But I, I do hope that one of the takeaways is, you know, to go back to the beginning of this episode, like part of what I want to tell the story was to draw this connection between Tatooine and the Southwest as these kind of frontier spaces, as these places where these different populations are coming together and are meeting and having these relations that run the gamut again from cooperation all the way to violence. And I think, you know, that is a story that we see on Tatooine. We see it between the indigenous, between the settlers and all the opportunists, all the pikes and all the huts and all the crime lords and all of that. And it is also a story that we see here in the Southwest. The Southwest is a story of interactions between indigenous populations, the native peoples, between settlers, whether that is the Spanish, whether that is the Americans in East Texas, and a story of opportunists, all these traders, all these merchants, and just the wide array of interactions and exchanges that they had. And so that was my purpose in telling this very broad, sweeping story. And so I, I hope sort of conveyed that. And a big reason that I chose the Comanches, apart from the fact that I think it kind of fits very well thematically, is because this story has been so has been told really well. There, the material for this episode all comes from a very good book by a historian named Pekahamalainen called The Comanche Empire. And so there is even more in that book than I was able to get into here. But yes, so I hope, I, I know it was a lot, but I, I hope that it is an illuminating story. I, I hope that it offered some insight into a people in a region that we don't really talk about all that much when we talk about particularly about American history. So there you go. So on that note, I, the Book of Boba Fett trilogy officially draws to a close. It is by no means going to be the last trilogy of episodes that I'm going to do. I have another one in, my, in mind that I plan probably for later in the fall of 2022. It really depends on the release calendar for Star Wars stuff later in the year and when shows come out and when I'm going to have to cover that stuff. But yeah, suffice it to say, the trilogy model will continue in the future. So what to expect on the next episode? Episode 37 will come out on May 9th. And in that episode, we'll be celebrating Attack of the Clones. We're going to be marking the 20th anniversary of the second installment of the prequel trilogy. So much like with Rogue One, much like with The Force Awakens, I'm going to be taking a look back at Attack of the Clones and about its impact on Star Wars. Until then, make sure you're subscribed to the show, rate and review the show if you're able to do so. If you're not already following the show on Twitter, you can do so at a larger view pod. And until next time, look for the Force and you will always find me. Music.